afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to the Spoken Metal Show. Today's episode is with Joseph Mortimer. After being suggested by uh, listener Craig that we should check out uh, Joe's sort of work and the bands he's been in, I knew a little bit about some of the bands that Joe had been in and is currently in, but maybe nowhere near as much as I'd like to. So we kind of really deep dived and went a lovely stroll down memory lane of the Liverpool metal scene around that time, the late 90s into 2000 and beyond. Some fascinating sort of insights there. Joseph is really, really eloquently speaks about metal. Has really interesting perspective on it as well. Uh, it, we'll definitely get him on again. We didn't even touch on. We touched on a little bit about the UK Slamfest and and of events that he was in, he's involved in. But we'll, we'll, there's a whole lot other episode there. We could have gone on for ages. This was one of the longest ones, close to two hours and above. But we talked about you know the band he's in now, uh, Carpothesis, uh, Crepitation. Um, and on all the bands that he's been in as well before Cancerous Womb and Neuroma, Sadistic Under Torture, um, you know, and he playing bass in, in kind of Corrupt Moral Altar, Ex- Exhumation, uh, Ogun, all this kind of he's, the guy's done so much great stuff and so constantly bringing out new bits and pieces and, and a real defender of the faith. I, I told him this on, 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 the, on the podcast as well, a real defender of the faith. and it's really kind of positive outlook about when we come out of this pandemic and coronavirus lockdown, what it's going to look like afterwards as well. We talk a little bit about that. Really nice conversation. I uh, hope you enjoy it. This is with uh, Joseph Mortimer. So Joe Mortimer, finally on the show. And a lot of people suggested that I speak to Joe about the scene, about kind of things he was involved with. And so we uh, attracted Joe down. It wasn't hard because uh, he's involved and he's friends with lots of friends that I'm with as well, because he's hosted a ton of events and, been in a ton of bands. In fact, looking at it, Joe, are you in every single extreme metal band that's ever existed? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I have. Been <laughs> I have. It's a it's a fair old list of like Cancerous Room and Crepitation, some great bands there. So we get the chance to sit down with with, with Joe Mortimer. Thanks for coming on the show, Joe. I really appreciate it. No problem. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's good. It's good to come on and speak to speak to people about everything I've been involved in, and just me really. Yeah, and fast some just some fascinating stuff, and, and I suppose the, the let's let's start as I always do and try and start at roughly the beginning. Do you remember your first introduction to, to music, and maybe not even music of an extreme nature, but just music itself? I would. Uh, funnily enough, I'd say that um, my introduction to music was probably actually quite extreme. Uh, okay. I wasn't really I wasn't really brought up in uh, a household which had a lot of music. Um, I don't remember it, but I was always told that my mum was playing. The, uh, the likes of Meatloaf um, and like Guns N' Roses, but I don't really recall any of that. The yeah. first first kind of memory of music, I guess, was, um, and at the time I didn't know who it was, I discovered years later, but at the age of eight, was actually listening to Celtic Frost. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that would be because my um, my brother brought me, uh, for my eighth birthday, brought me, back in 1994, bought some um manga videos for me um because yeah it's something he was interested in himself and i used to watch with him so he bought me he bought me some uh, manga uh gaiba vhs videos yeah Uh, and back in the um mid-90s manga used to use the heart beneath by celtic frost as the as as a a music like you sampled that as a part of the advertisement campaign yeah and uh, so that that was my first kind of that's interesting i think a lot of people say video games and and the mum and dad's record collection, but you came from a from a, like listening to to being the background of like manga and stuff and anime. That's interesting. And I think Celtic Frost are they kind of 
And they, they are underrated, Celtic Frost, right? I mean, I know a lot of people who, who, who like them, but they don't seem to come up as much as you'd think for people's influences. Um, you know, they're hugely experimental as well, to, to a certain, a greater or lesser degree, Celtic Frost. But it's just, I don't know, they kind of seem to always get forgotten when people talk about important bands along the structure of getting to extreme sort of metal and stuff. I just think it's interesting that they're, they kind of fell by the wayside. It's, it's strange, Celtic Frost, like. Yeah, they're what the one of those strange bands that I'm every band that people listen to would probably cite as a huge influence, but yeah. they themselves but they themselves don't necessarily come up as a band that people refer to yeah. as some like as influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than maybe in like the older generations of people um yeah. who were like listening to like into into the pandemonium and stuff back in the day yeah. when those when those earlier records were first coming out. They certainly didn't. I think they're one of those bands who got more popular after they declined in popularity. In yeah. Way, kind of twist the fate way that yeah. people kind of realised their older material was such a big influence. They on had that wonderful thing, though, of, of, of kind of almost, not totally, but, but changing their sound from album to album. They could really yeah, kind yeah, of certainly. stuff. They were, they were, I, I, I say experimental, but they were. They, and I think, like, as they kind of moved to the sort of late late to middle 90s i think they were doing some some great one that's probably where that the height of the popularity lay like so you were listening to to them uh did you kind of offshoot from that it's like okay these bands tour with this band or did you kind of how did you get into the other bands then how did that kind of spider out well as, as i say like um they were the first bands that i recall hearing but i didn't actually find out it was them for a very oh, right. long time yeah. Uh, I, actually, I actually didn't find out until I had my first smartphone, where I had like an app where you you, you can record a sample of music and it'll tell you who it is. Sure, uh, yeah. So years and years later, with a whole kind of musical journey in between, I was like, I wonder what band that was. And yeah. I, I, sc- I scanned it and I was like, oh my God, that was Celtic Frost. Like, I never knew because it just it was never a band that I grappled with loads at the time mm. when I yeah. was in my, my late teen years, early 20s. Um, but then it kind of made me think, oh wow, that, that's actually a band that, yeah. like, I one probably the first band that I ever heard as far as like heavy music is. It's interesting that you say that. You like only later found out who it was, and then obviously you could look at the back catalogue and whatever. But so in, in the first inception, you would it was just the noise, it was the sounds that were going on, the heavier sound, the heavier guitar, the heavier sort of whole mentality. That was something that kind of like lit a fire under you like kind of sparked you were like I, I don't know what this is but i really like it was it more yeah, of a exactly. type of thing yeah 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 it was the kind of vibe it was the kind of at the time i really enjoyed the kind of sequencing that it had with the imagery right. and which is what kind of got me into how, how i started really with music to kind of carry on that story um when i was uh quite uh, about the same time as you know, a few years later when I was in a high school, uh, me, and me, me and my high school best mate, Glenn, started. Um, we were we, we met together in high school and we were both into anime uh, and manga. And we were what uh, we found a website which had loads of um, like cutscenes from anime, from like fight scenes which had had which had metal songs in the background. Yeah, uh, and were were like sequenced in time with the metal songs. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of like getting exposed to all of this heavy music through this imagery and these kind of violent fight scenes. So the music kind of represented it. Yeah. And at the time, um, it was uh, the, it was um, while 
new metal was probably in that, it's like kind of second wave of like um deftones and corn and slipknot and all those kind of bands so those were featuring with the all of this footage back in what 99 2000 1998 through to 2000 and we were watching all of these videos um which was really getting us into heavier music rock music and stuff where from especially in the part of Liverpool that we were both coming up in, it was you know very rare that you really came across anybody who was in our age who was into that kind of music. So we were just enjoying it ourselves. Yeah. Um, and also at that time, there was also the rise of the likes of South Park and Jackass, which had like hard rock soundtracks. And we were yeah. watching, we used to watch MTV, which had like Beavis and Butthead, Celebrity Deathmatch. Uh, so there was all kinds of kind of joke violence, real violence, all kinds of music that was kind of being associated with it as well as being brought up in Bootle, which was quite a rough area of Liverpool. Sure. So so we kind of associated everything that we were experiencing day to day with the stuff that we were interested visually, which came, was accompanied by all of this heavy music. So it kind of all just worked. It just made sense to us. Everything that we would listen to would match the imagery and it would match the kind of discussions that we were having just as teenagers. Was so you able? Kind of was, was you able then to kind of? Were you able to deep dive on anything? Were you able to kind of go and start fishing for stuff, if you will? So you'd watch stuff. You'd see like South Park, or you'd watch like a celebrity death match, and they'd use like a sample out of Slayer, or they'd use something like that. Were you able to kind of then go out and start trying finding this music as well, separately from watching it and, and kind of seeing it on no, uh, you know like uh, raw power and noisy mothers and that type of thing. Yeah, so we were, we'd, we'd go online whenever we could, like at the time, Glenn, we, Glenn had a computer and I didn't, so we were going on searching for similar artists, and when we got our first couple of CDs, and we'd look at, we'd, we'd, we'd listen to a popular CD, like for early Deftones, listening yeah. to like Adrenaline around, around the fair, mm. and we'd look at all the bands who those bands, the bands that we enjoyed, used to thank. In their thanks oh, list. Right. Yeah, in the thank you section at the back, yeah, where they, on a, uh, they'd go, like, thank the mum and dad and stuff, and they'd thank the bands that they'd been out with, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you'd, so the way I kind of approached it, if I found a band that I'd like, I wouldn't necessarily buy the album that had the songs on that I liked by them. I'd buy their first album. Right. And then I'd read the thanks list, and I'd be like, right, who are the bands that these bands That's used to play? used to play with, used to grow up with, you know, used to, you know, started out with, who were friends with, and then yeah. I'd look and try and buy those CDs, buy those bands. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at the, um, the Slipknot self-titled album in the thanks list, there's loads of, like, death metal bands and stuff, so it was mm. just like, who are these bands? So then I'd go and explore. And you get deep dive, yeah. Yeah, so then, um, especially with the use of Last FM, which was one of the earliest kind of... I remember uh, that, yeah, of, yeah. It's like a social media platform, which purely just kind of records what music you listen to um, and gives you suggestions for other artists. So when I was, uh, the first time I ever heard Napalm there was on a, a Kerrang! Coverman CD or High Times, I think maybe back in 2001 or something. Yeah. Um, and I had like loads of skate punk tunes on it and stuff. So mm. I was like, like Blink-182, Phoenix TX, all the kind of bands that yeah. I got into through the, like, the movies out at the time, like yeah, American Pie. Uh, then this track on it, which was Napalm Death, and me and Glenn were like, whoa, what the hell is this? This is that like stands out from everything else so much. Like, yeah, uh, it was just like, like this was ferocious. This was just insane. It was almost funny to us because of how heavy it was. We couldn't really comprehend yeah. it. But then Glenn got a bunch of Napalm Death CDs for his birthday that year because he'd asked for them. And then we were yeah. looking through all of those kind of, all of the bands in those, who were referred to in those albums. 
Last FM was linking us to bands like Pig Destroyer and um, we were like, whoa, like this is this. When you when you think you know everything there is to know, you yeah. suddenly realise you don't know anything because yeah. for every band that you discover, there's another ten bands, twenty bands, thirty bands linked to yeah. that band. So yeah. then it just keeps on. It's like the, uh, it's just a wave effect. You find a, a lot of times. A lot of times, especially with extreme music, we only remember kind of the 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 the, the, the people that got to the top of the mountain, the people that kind of broke through and cut, crossed over. We don't think of somehow the work that goes on before it, before it's bands that uh, kind of like build it up to that. There was this wonderful cauldron of stuff going on around 2000, 2000, the early 2000s, sort of pre when the internet really exploded. You could totally like, you, know, you could put on Spotify and find any artist and look for everything. And Last FM was kind of drip feeding sort of bands to you. But there was loads of like compilation CDs and everything, like you say, that was like had skate videos and stuff like that on had everything it had like scar it had like pop punk it had death metal and it was all thrown in together because it was just all kind of mu- music at the fringes of society if you will like so i remember listening to like like fudge tunnel and stuff at that that age uh, at that kind of that sort of time and they were kind of another example of a band that were like did the work but other other bands kind of took it and kind of got more famous off the back of it we forget these bands don't we, we forget things like pig destroyer and kind of just how important they are in kind of the makeup of where we got to. A lot of people on the show cite Cannibal Corpse as being one of those moments where they go from, I thought I knew fucking everything about the music I was into, but then I hear this, and it just fucking takes me another step forward. Was the main motivation for you listening to stuff was go, how more extreme does it get? Was it kind of a bigger, faster, harder type of math attitude there? Yeah, kind of. It was strange that I, like uh, every band that I listened to, but I just thought this band's killer, this band's heavy. Like I'm into this. I'd always drift to the heavier end of that album as well. Right. So when I was getting into Deftones, for example, the first track I heard by them was uh, Head Up, which okay. uh, was was on around the third and had Max Cavalera doing guest vocals. And I was yeah. like, who's this guest vocalist? So then that got me into Sepultura. And, and I was just like, well, like nail bomb and stuff, and then you're away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then obviously through, through all that can lead me to Fudge Tunnel as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it's all connected in through one way. So every band mm. that I was into, every band that I was enjoying, I, I when I was like around that age, I used to really enjoy. When I was whenever I was drawing or painting or anything in school, it was always kind of like uh, landscapes, seascapes, seascapes, and always kind of dark colors, always kind of moody kind of feeling. So I always used to kind of imagine the music with the imagery. Yeah. Uh, so I always um, kind of visualized the heavier songs on the albums that I was listening to with heavier, darker, moodier looking soundscapes. So uh, I remember I bought, like I'm sure a lot of people would laugh, but I bought the album Break the Cycle by Stained when that first came out. Because I, I seen it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I seen it in uh, Music Zone, in uh, Bootle New Strand, and I bought it. Uh, before I'd even heard anything, because I really enjoyed the artwork, yeah, and I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the album, and then, but they had some really heavier songs on the album. Well, yeah, um, Mike, Mike Mushock, the uh, the guitar player, he did like he was the first kind of metal guy I really kind of listened to. That was really fucking round with tunings and different things and baritone guitars and and all kinds of stuff. Anybody who hasn't heard that album, a lot of people will say stained, and they'll think of all the, the hits to, and all that stuff and. And the videos, were, but there was a it was a very dark, especially that album. Certainly with the imagery, it was incredibly dark and kind of like you know, really plumbing the depths of kind of 
uh, dark mentalities and kind of imagery and stuff. People forget that. Do you think they see them more as a pop act because the whole Limp Biscuit thing when they kind of friends with them? It's interesting. Yeah. That, yeah. I didn't consider like, that. I, I listened to the album for the same reason, yeah. Like, whenever I, uh, whenever I mention the band to people, I always suggest to listen to Dysfunction, the previous album. Because mm-hmm. I think that would add even heavier moments, like really yeah. like neck neck breaking rips. Yeah. So I, I kind of whatever band that I actually was into at the time, I always drifted towards the heavier end of what they were doing. Uh, I remember like when I was started uh, picking up magazines like Kerrang, Rockstar, Metal Hammer, Terrorizer, and like listen, like that was a big kind of opened up a world of music to me um, because yeah. of the, the cover mount CDs. So uh, there was, I went through a, a long period at that time, but because it was very popular, I've listened to a lot of the post-hardcore, post-pop like punk, but, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, largely because of the um, Tony Ox games. So like the, the original yeah. Tony Ox, which came out in the late nineties, had like it had everything from suicidal tendencies to refused to uh, anthrax uh, mm-hmm. and. Um, all kinds of bands on, like you mentioned earlier, there was a mixture of like pop punk, a mixture of ska with bits of like yeah, less a lot of crossover stuff, like like tendencies and stuff. We're, we're mixing kind of like rap and infectious grooves type of things together. And a lot of people yeah, cite yeah. a lot of people cite Tony Hawk's like a, that's getting remade now. Be better. The soundtrack's gonna have to be killer for that. Like you know, it's gonna have what yeah, yeah, yeah. to get all loads of like bands back together and kind of mix bands up and stuff. But well, yet a lot of people cite Tony Hawk's um, as being the kind of the way of getting into bands that the people hadn't heard of and stuff. So when you when you're in taking this music in, are you just buying CDs then, or how how often are you doing it? Because you, you, we're not at a point yet we can buy a lot of stuff or download a lot of stuff online yet, are we? Yeah, I, I was never really online when I was younger. I never really, I, I never, I, I had a computer at home, but it was mostly for like a couple of games and schoolwork and stuff. But I never really had uh, yeah. internet access, so I never really had that ability. I could, um, for a short while, I had Sky and cable access, so I could watch like the music channels. Uh, but mostly, um, there was like one pivotal moment actually. Uh, going back to Glenn, he gave me a. Um, I gave him a blank video cassette, which he put a uh, put in to um, record from Kerrang, uh, from uh, from when we left to go to school until we got home. And then I've still got that <laughs> video now. Yeah, I've still got that video now. So it must be from nineteen ninety nine, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and um, like then I'd got so I could then go home and watch all of these music videos for these bands that I went I'd never heard of. So that was mm. like, another big thing for me, just the kind of listening to music. Um, when I was in college, uh, that was like when I first started being able to earn money and buy my own uh, music. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd I'd leave Hubert College in Bootle, I'd go down to Music Zone in Bootle New Strand, and I'd be picking up whatever I could. But Music Zone was a really good source of um, new music and older music as well for quite yeah. you know reasonable price. So I'd get my EMA and I'd go down there and pick whatever up, whether it was a band that I'd heard before a band had recently heard um, on a cover mount cd or just because i like the album artwork or somebody had mentioned a name or i'd read the name in a fans list somewhere i'd be like yeah. oh. it's like uh, i bought um i bought an album by discharge purely because i had another album by anthrax where they'd covered uh protest and survive by discharge so i was like i'm gonna go and buy this discharge cd because it must be awesome if anthrax are gonna cover them yeah yeah, that, that, pick- whole, that whole infrastructure of, of cover mount CDs 
and, and magazines kind of telling you about bands coming out and stuff like that and the artwork being as a, a point of reference to kind of get to where your next band's going to be and discover new bands. That whole infrastructure's gone now, hasn't it, essentially? It's 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 moved on. We're, we're a whole different thing now. And there was a beauty to that. There was something a little bit more... It, it added validity and weight, I think. So if you went to buy a CD, so you went to buy a Discharge CD, you would, even if you didn't like it the first pass, because you had the CD, you would just listen to it relentlessly until you fucking liked it. It's funny you say that because I, I actually said almost that exact phrase to somebody the other day that yeah. you know you'd buy a CD or you get a you get a CD like off your family for mm. Christmas or your birthday or something and you listen to it and this day and age you might listen to something going ah it's not for me that but and back then you'd be like yeah yeah that's a, it's like oh, I'll sell it or I'll give it away but back then it was like no I've, I've paid like yeah. a lot of money for which yeah. it, of what I have. And yeah. so I'm going to listen to it until I like it or I find something that I like about it. Yeah, because, like, now you would listen to, like, on Spotify or whatever streaming service you've got. And and people will do this. People go, people go, oh, I don't I don't like Slayer. And you go, okay, if you listen to them, I heard a song once. And, mm. and, that's, and that's enough to them for not listening to an artist. It's like, you fucking crazy that you go, you, you, go, you know, you assume by two or three tracks you've assumed you entire body of work of an artist like one at some a person i know who's, who's not into metal and we were talking about and metallica as being a touchstone as that they might know that because it's very famous and they were like oh, i'm not really keen on metallica like and i was like what what have you what have you heard just out of interest and they, they named about two or three songs that come up on spotify that were like pretty deep cuts of albums like call of cthulhu and stuff like and i was like that's not really what that's not the Metallica I would say would suggest going to to getting into them. And people forget this, that sometimes you need to be lubed up to a band before you fucking get all the deep cuts and the experimental stuff. You need to kind of hear their more accessible tracks where you go, okay, let's let's get to go. Okay, that's a more accessible track. From that now, I can start going into the, the catalogue a little bit more in depth. We've lost, I think, all of that, all of that kind yeah. of willingness to, to listen. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people have just lost the ability and the actual art of listening. Like people don't really know what they listen to or mm. what they're listening for anymore. Yeah. Like it's it, it it was almost a an art form to actually listen to something to find, you know, hear what the artist wanted to get across. Like, yeah. It's something it's something which I think has just changed over the generations, changed over the years. But as you say, you you, you don't really get people who spend much time on it they'll hear like if you play somebody who's not really into metal somebody something like slayer they'll be like oh it's kind of like the whole you know oh it's just screaming kind of thing it's like well yeah. do you like uh, do you, what do you think of the, the musicality of it what do you think of the messages behind it what do you think about the artwork mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you can and it, it, the next step beyond that is like oh well I appreciate the really good musicians, but it's not for me. And I was like, well, that's that's fair enough. But yeah, a lot yeah. of people, a, a lot of people, kind of, you know, are very reductive in their analysis of what music yeah. can be. Yeah, I mean, look, you, you, you're allowed to to not like uh, uh, acts and stuff. That's not that I'm like I'm kind of any kind of gatekeeper to say what you're not allowed to. But you can listen to something, but at least give them a, a chance. You know what I mean? It's like you can't listen to one song by an artist and suddenly go. I'm not into them. You just can't do that, you know. Um, and I think that a lot of people have maybe don't get into the heavier sides and more extreme sides of music because they think it sounds one way. 
and they don't know the thought process that's gone into making it. So they're like, well, you know, it's not for me. I'll just, and they're missing out on a huge wealth. Like, um, Camel Corpse comes up a lot, but are often kind of put against, like, obviously, it's it's crazy imagery, it's hyper-violence and that type of thing, and very kind of incendiary uh, album and titles of songs and stuff. But the musicianship and what's going on in there is superb, and there's some really interesting stuff going on, you know, it, it removed from that. And so I think it probably puts people, a lot of people off the more extreme end of music. But in your case, I, it sounds like you became almost like something of a librarian to it, where you were like, okay, who did they listen to? Who did they go out and tour with? Who were their influences? And you really kind of fell down the rabbit hole, so to speak, with, with yeah, artists. That's, that's quite funny that you use that term, because that's kind of how I describe like most things that I'm into. Like um, <laughs> a, a lot, a, Some of my friends have kind of described me as like a bit of a, you know, walking like dictionary or encyclopedia sure. of like of metal bands and stuff. And I don't think I know that much, but it's probably because I know a lot that I don't think I know much at all. If that makes sense, I know like, that makes total sense. Yeah, uh, yeah, like because of because I've looked into some things. Like I'll I'll, I'll be so, like today, for example, I was sitting like me and my me and my girlfriend are currently working from home. Mm. and there was a, a song came on to just the spotify playlist and i was like oh did you know about this this song you know the the reason why they were they wrote this was because they were influenced by this and she was just like how do you know this how do you, like, where why? Do you keep this in your mind yeah like what <laughs> like why why do you know this it's like um again to just go back to skit stained there was a song called waste and um which came on to on my spotify the other day while we were working i was like oh this has actually got a really sad story kind of, and told the story and she was just like mm. and i was like and i looked i looked at her before she even said it i was like why do i know this yeah <laughs> and it's just, just it's just that you store yeah yeah it's just it's just things which you know when i was especially more so when i was younger when i used to i'd buy a cd and i'd, I'd analyze everything about the cd and then i'd read all the magazines and read everything which i could about an artist that i was interested in because i wanted to know i genuinely wanted to know what was about where an artist was about what their influence was, what what the songs so, were about. Have we, are we maybe kind of get to a point with the way people are listening and and taking in music now in in a streaming platform and that type of thing? And this gets raised a lot on the show. It's interesting you you talk about how to listen to a band, the art of listening. Are we? It's definitely changed. I would say it's almost been weakened now. We've almost taught people to listen to thirty, sixty seconds of a song and judge that song. Um, to listen to songs away from an album separately when sometimes they're meant to be contextual even part of a progressive sort of whole storyline and we're teaching people to kind of um almost it feels like we're dumbing down our listening habits by the way we are by giving people the option to just skip through stuff and skip through tracks on an album and go from one decade to the next and that type of thing and selectively pull from someone's catalog rather than kind of listening almost like you say as the artist intended it feels like we may have dumbed down our listening skills as well with the with, uh, kind of last sort of five to ten years. Yeah, I agree. Like if you go back into the history of music, you'd like if you go back to like the uh, the sixties and seventies when there was a huge shift away from music being about singles uh, to music being about albums. So bands like the the Beatles and Pink Floyd were like pioneering when it came to mm-hmm. uh, like making albums and not just. Like, a CD with a, or a tape or a vinyl with a, a collection of songs on it. Excuse me. When it when things became more about an actual album, so you could even go as far as back as like 
Bitches Brew by Miles Davis mm. as something which could be hugely influential because it was so different. Uh, yeah. But there was so much more focus on what the album stood for. But I think we've almost kind of gone backwards a little bit now where it's gone back to singles, like singles and music videos. And then it's there's so many bands and artists and musicians these days which kind of fall into the one-hit wonder kind of thing, I guess, yeah. where they'll have a song or a music which is super popular and then nobody ever hears it. They can release an album, which might do okay, but people don't know anything about it because they only listen to that song. They never really listen to the album. They, ne- they never listen to anything else the artist done. So yeah. artists become so much more of a consumer product. Music is uh, very much a consumed product these days as opposed to something which people enjoy. I, I, I think of myself as a music music fan more than I'd say represent myself as a metalhead. Like people would look at right. me and say, oh, what long hair, beard, metal t-shirt, he's definitely a metalhead. But yeah. I, 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 you know, maybe that's how I look on the outside, but I'd say that I'm more of just a music fan, somebody who enjoys music, not just enjoys yeah. songs. So that's why that's I've it, always... That's just something that gets... Why is it that that only gets levelled as at, at the metal fraternity? Is that, you know, if you're a metalhead, or, you know, maybe a punk is probably, probably gets a little bit of this as well, that somehow you cannot listen to anything else. That just seems crazy, whereas every other facet of music, like pop, you can listen to whatever you like. Rock, you can listen to whatever. But something about metal, people immediately close everything, all the fences around you, and go, well, you can't listen to... You don't like... Well, you, must, you mustn't like Pink Floyd, then, because they're not metal. It's like, no, 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 no. It's still great music. It's still powerful music. Why wouldn't they do that? And and with this comes up a lot as well on the show. In, in listening to that, you can take that and bring it into metal and, and enrich metal. All of the best sort of metal albums have took things from the blues or things from punk or things from classical music and have took all those things and, and just enriched metal. It seems crazy that we get leveled as metalheads as being, well, you only listen to that. It's like, no, 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 I can enjoy Bitches, Bitches Brew. We talked about, I talked about Bitches Brew on, an, um, on a previous show about how I, li- I listen to that, I don't know, maybe once or twice a year, not, not too often, couple, every couple of months. And I still don't understand it. I still don't get it. It's too complex for me. But I know it's important, and I know it's great. I know it's important. And every so often when I listen to it, I get a little bit further with it, when I'm like, okay, I think I know what's going on here. Musically, from a notes point of view, I know it's intelligence. But I never really kind of complete the journey with it. I just think it's interesting as, as, as metalheads, we get pigeonholed as being only that type of music, and that's it. It's crazy, that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those that it's probably. I think a lot of people look at it as so incredibly like impenetrable. Like you know, mm, you'll see, you'll, you'll meet, you'll meet, you'll meet somebody, uh, just anybody, any in any any occasion. You'll be like, oh, so what kind of music are you into? And they'll be like, oh, a little bit of everything except metal. <laughs> you know, a lot of people will find <laughs> it is so so kind of like, you know, the the, the normal answers are like, oh, well, I listen to a little bit of everything except metal and opera. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're, yeah. they're the usual. They're the two answers that people it, get because it, people... It seems, it seems like the only way metal sometimes gets through sometimes is when it's so good or, 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 the, or the implication from it is so powerful it cannot be ignored. So something like uh, the Ace of Spades, like Motorhead's Ace of Spades, is, is a staple rock song, many would argue, and, and straddling metal to a certain degree. But because of its message and it's so powerful, it just cuts through into the zeitgeist. It just becomes a thing. I was talking on... On another episode about the, um, the the theme of the LucasAid ad was uh, Phantom of the Opera by Maiden, and that's pure yeah. metal. It's a pure metal, but everybody recognised it because it come through the 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 what's the word 
the kind of in the, the way it was meant to be listened to and the way it was meant to be inferred is so pal- it's just good it just comes through some might say that that's the point when a band sells out and that that's that, that's the argument gets put at a metal band that sells out so when it when it does become for lack of a better word palatable for an audience is when a band kind of like everybody knows paranoid by black sabbath and that's famous and that charted in the singles chart but but the sabbath hadn't sold out you know it's interesting isn't it you know um there's a whole wealth of stuff we could go into there like so let's let's kind of pull it back slightly so when you're taking these bands in you're going out and you're buying cds and you're kind of looking through and figuring out what's going on was there a particular band that really sort of made sense to you you really kind of zoned in you're like these are doing everything i'm hearing by them is great and everything they're doing i really enjoy I'd say probably Deftones, actually, were the first yeah. band that I ever, ever really got obsessed over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and the reason by, why, to take it back to when I mentioned uh, Head Up off Around the Fair, that was mm-hmm. such a, a, a big song for me. It really kind of opened up a lot of music to me. But I didn't know what the name of the song was. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually just knew it was by Deftones, because that's all the information that was on the video. So yeah. I ended up having to buy every album that I could find by Deftones <laughs> until, I, uh, until I found the one with Head On. So sure. they had three they had three commercially released albums at the time and of course that song uh was on the last album i bought by them oh, yeah of yeah. course it is so that's by all three <laughs> and by, by that point i had more albums by them than i had by any other band i had a lot of information i had to just released white pony which went absolutely supernova for them yeah um, yeah so like that kind of just massively opened my world like you know the the heaviness the kind of kind of street kind of vibes of the idea kind of rap crossover yeah. stuff yeah, didn't it? on a, on adrenaline through to the kind of spacey kind of trippy vibes and white yeah that's and Stephen carpenter brought all that kind of like noise core tough stuff as well to into it as well and the interesting sort of uh you know abstract ideas uh, uh which which really kind of lovely bracketed the the heavy ideas and the, the, the more simpler riffs and they had these like wild sort of excursions where they would do these sort of lovely echo stuff and everything. I remember seeing Stephen Carpenter a few times and being amazed at how he could straddle both. He could play, you know, straight down the middle and kind of really heavy cut up stuff and then do this lovely sort of choral stuff as well. I thought he was fantastic. A real complete player. I don't think Stephen Carpenter gets the, the credit he deserves for being that real sort of complete player. And maybe by extension, Chino as well, because it, it, of like, you know, the the, the the wonderful switching he could do within song and the desperation stuff like you know i like drive and stuff like that and shove and drive that type of thing was really uh difficult to pull off i found as a musician where you could do both you could do the, the ups and the downs and create these wonderful valleys and peaks within the songs and i don't think maybe to the uninitiated death death turns get as many as much respect as they deserve for doing that and that's a great band to kind of be your the first band that opens doors for you because they cover a lot of musical ground, don't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the the, the kind of bands that they cite interest in is everybody from the likes of Maiden Metallica through to like like these days they have mentioned stuff like Dillinger Escape Plan and Converge as being in, influences yeah, on yeah, them, yeah. especially just because of the variance of sound, especially with the, the more recent Deftones albums like Gore. Uh, which you've got almost a more a sound which is synonymous with the likes of uh, like genty bands, uh, genty yeah. tech metal bands and proggy bands and stuff. Um, even the occasional Meshuggah moments. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 
So they get a, a lot of influence, a lot of sound, and they deliver it. They're capable of taking it all in, delivering it, but always keeping their own sound as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and moving it, and moving it forward on each album to be keeping interesting. Like the difference from around the fair to White Pony is is pretty big, but it's still the same band, right? And it's still, and as you move forward and to, to go to Gore, it's still the same band, even though the makeup of the of each of each of those albums is radically different and, and the approach is radically different it's still the same band creatively moving moving through so at this point are you have you picked up an instrument at this point uh, are you trying to recreate these sounds that you're hearing um, or learn these songs so i had picked up an instrument uh but it wasn't a guitar or a bass or anything it was actually uh, i started playing saxophone uh okay. high school um it was more of an more of an excuse to hang around with my friends, really, because I had some friends in high school who were mm-hmm. in like the school orchestra and stuff. So yeah. uh, I I went along and asked if I could if there was any instruments needed in the orchestra. And they, uh, the music teacher in high school said, uh, "Oh yeah, yeah, we've got a place for the alto saxophone." So I got one of them through school and I started playing. So that was kind of my first excursion into playing music, learning things about music, learning to read and write music. Right, because um, that's interesting. So, so, you're listening to one style of music and you're enjoying that, but then there's no saxophone for the most part on on on, on a lot of these records. Where are you listening to to learn the saxophone then? What, so what are you I would, listening there? So I don't know really. Like I was, I, I'd never really listened at that time to any kind of jazz or any kind of classical music, right. but right. through through that kind of through playing in the orchestra it kind of introduced me to the likes of glenn miller uh and then right. so i'd start i started to enjoy like listening to jazz listening to blues and i was trying to get all of the sheet music that i could get a hold of from the department to try and play things right um and so it just kind of opened me up to musicality so yeah well, you, kind you, of, you you there's not that many like when you're learning guitar or bass or to draw or drums to a certain extent there's, there's some quick routes to doing that, like guitar tablature or tablature itself is an easier way to, if you don't want to learn sight reading, you can learn to play a piece of music. But with the saxophone, it's my understanding, I wouldn't claim to be a saxophonist of any kind, but it's my understanding that there's no real easy books for that. It's a case of you have to learn to read music. You have to learn to sight read to, to, to play that instrument properly. So you almost kind of force yourself to do that. Were you self-taught or was there a teacher who would go, help you work out kind of what, you know, what these pictures and what these sort of uh, diagrams meant on the stage. Did someone walk you through that or did you learn yourself? So I was able to get hold of some, uh, some music theory books from Dawson's right. uh, back in the day. So I could kind of teach the earlier saxophone books to kind of teach me where to put my fingers. But mm. there's a lot of, uh, I had a, a high school music teacher, uh, like a saxophone one-to-one teacher as part of GCSE music which would help me kind of understand how to actually play. So with a saxophone, you've got a very specific embouchure, it's called. It's how you hold your mouth around the reed and the mouthpiece to actually make the sound that you wanted to do. You can't just put it in your mouth and blow because it, it'll, it'll probably just squeak back at you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had to learn about how to hold that, how to use, how to breathe properly, how to when to rest and so I just used books um, that I got through school and books that I was able to pick up from uh, Dawson's in town and Curly's and stuff, so I could get a, just to learn kind of general songs. So they all have like um, regular pop songs and very simple uh, kind of root notes for how to play them on saxophone. So it wasn't necessarily saxophone songs; it was just playing popular songs. Like yeah, I don't know. 
the Titanic theme tune and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you, you picked the and... notes out to follow it along. Yeah. So when so, you uh, when you're listening to 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 the to, to this as well, that's it. It reminds me that of uh, when when Zappa was first, you know, listening to music. He was listening to uh, to blues first, but he also liked Stravinsky, and you know, uh, he'd listen to Three Hours Past Midnight, a blues song, and then he would listen to Stravinsky and and things like Ionization and stuff like that. And and it was that clashing of the two that kind of ultimately gave us gave us Frank Zappa and that kind of that 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 way he went. It seems to me that the that part of you and the learning is is something that you can help you fold back if you start to pick up the bass as well. So when did the other instruments come into play? So very towards the end of high school, so when I was doing my GCSEs, uh, mm. I, had a, I had a friend who was playing, uh, he was playing guitar. He used to play like Green Day and Blink-182 tracks and stuff like that. And uh, there was a spare bass, which I used to just kind of try, used to try and tell me where to put my fingers and stuff, yeah. uh, just so I could play along with them. Um, I didn't think much of it at the time, but I thought I'd, I'd just play along with him so he's got like an accompanist yeah. uh, to go along. Um, but when I it was, I, I got my first bass and really started playing bass when I went to college. So when I left high school, I went to Hubert College and I started. I actually started doing um, A levels in maths, physics, business studies, and IT computing. Um, for, I did that for one year and then dropped all of them. Um, because I had a friend, uh, it wasn't even a friend, it was just somebody I knew from my high school who went to that college, who was telling me about a music tech course they were doing. And I was like, for, for whatever reason at the time, it just made full sense for me to, I, I think I'd lost interest in mid kind of, you know, foundational core subjects like maths and science, and mm. I didn't really have an idea of where I was going, so I kind of just switched to music, because that's something I was really interested in, really enjoyed and decided to drop all of those. So I finished the, uh, the first year, got an a, uh, AS levels in all of them, and then decided to uh, move through to music technology. Uh, so I started doing a BTEC in music technology, and on that course I met a guy called Tom. Um, not somebody I rarely speak to these days, still got him on social media, but I, I bought my first bass from him. Um, for It was a, a vintage uh, four-string, bought it off him for 80 quid, I think. Yeah. Uh, he was a he was a really good bassist. He was a really you know he, he really knew what he was doing. Uh, I bought a bass off him just because I was enjoying the idea of playing more with actual instruments. Uh, getting try, trying to learn to play something mm. that was akin to the music that I was listening to. Right. Yeah. So that was that was back in two thousand and three uh, okay. when I first hit, bought bought my first bass from him and started really getting into playing music more did you find um, that some of the, did you find that some of the stuff that you'd learned on on the sax you could bring over because your ear was probably pretty pretty well tuned at this point wasn't it, it with the stuff you were doing the sax and root note stuff and that's thing, you were pretty kind of savvy to maybe sort of notes and scales and stuff you could probably hear them or had a pretty good sort of start in ear training and then you know would you be able to sight read and stuff to a certain a greater or lesser degree did they, did that help starting the base was it instead of sort of was it was starting at ground zero and moving up the stuff that you learned from a a, a saxophone point of view and and, and the things you were learning there was it transferable those skills over to the base or were you starting at absolute zero and moving forward that way so in some ways it did help it helped me just have a bit of a musical understanding so i knew what was going on i knew 
musical staves and score. I knew like I knew how to read and write. So if somebody gave me music, I could figure out. It did take me a long time to actually transfer the ability to read sheet music and then play that on bass. When mm. I, I never I never had any in, like any kind of lessons on bass. I, I did just pick it up and just play on my own at least for when was it? So from two thousand three to two thousand and nine. Uh, when I started in university, where I got some uh, bass lessons in university, um, for a lot while I was studying music in at that at that level as well. So yeah. for, for... I, I, I put it forward, Joe. The, 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 definitely, the, your ear was probably a lot better tuned than most musicians when they first pick up the, 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 that instrument because of the work you'd done. I think that was probably definitely something you 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 benefited from from having. Um, yeah, so I, I agree. Did you, at this point, were you going to see bands in a live context, or when did you start sort of going out and actually seeing some of the bands that you might have listened to? So it was, my, my the first ever show I went to was 2000, December 2002, right. um, where uh, some, of my, uh, some of my friends um, at the time, uh, and some people I'm actually still very good friends with now, um, they got tickets to go and see um, Disturbed in Manchester. Okay. Um, yeah. So we so we went to see the uh, Disturbed as our first ever kind of live music, uh, yeah. like proper rock show. Really, I was Disturbed with a band from Sweden called Blindside supporting. Yeah. And in fact, the opening band who didn't turn up to play the show was actually meant to be the Darkness back then. Um, <laughs> and okay, that's they, interesting. They they never had any uh, singles out. I'd never heard of them at the time. Um, yeah. And it was only like a couple of years later. And I was just like, no way they were meant to play that first show. So that was my first like show. And it was a big show as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then after that very first show, I was hooked. So I'd go to every show that I possibly could. I'd you know, drag my school friends to uh, and my college friends to shows wherever I could. Um, and then shows, the more I found shows, the more shows I found out about. So I'd get flyers at those shows and i'd go to local shows um and i'd speak to friends to just turn up at like a bar where we knew bands were playing just to find out more and more i remember going to shows to see uh, in uh it was hannah's bar uh, in liverpool city center yeah, yeah. where before it was um refurbed years ago and i remember going to like an all day i show upstairs with some college friends and i never knew any of the bands and i couldn't even tell you what bands played if i, if I remember <laughs> if, if i look back at it i just remember yeah. we went there just to listen to loads of music but yeah. um through co- through college i got um good friends with a guy called paul charnock uh who's quite well known around the liverpool he was yeah. he was part of ogan back in the day yeah. um and he was in scare tactics for a long yeah, time yeah, as well time scare tactics as well yeah yeah so um, I, I made good friends with him, uh, and I, I'd, I'd known Ogan through a lot of Liverpool shows, just at these little bars that I was going to the old uh, the old picket on the um, on Hardman Street, going to yeah. all like all day of shows there with other bands like Hollow Point and Obsolete and bands around that time, which is how I really started making a lot of friends in like the Liverpool metal scene and community. Uh, getting to know all of the bands who were playing around um, was Skeptic Messiah, I remember as well. A few other bands who were making, um, just making, you know, young young people making um, noise, mostly doing covers of like like Marilyn Manson, Alice in Chains, and you know Metallica, and just like bands do, like like doing sets, playing all of their covers for the first time. 
Um, and that's how that was my introduction to like the Liverpool metal scene and the rock scene going on, and now and to a lot of people who kind of helped develop that for me as well. It sounds like you had a really kind of voracious appetite for getting to see new music and getting out and to see bands that you hadn't seen before, and and, and kind of just the whole live experience. It seems like you were really kind of fervently looking for that. Yeah, very much like the earlier years, like I was mentioned just before about. Um, like the sights and sounds of the areas I was growing up in, and the sights and sound, the the sights of anime, the sights of like jackass, the sights of you know, and all of the skateboarding videos, and the sounds of the music which came with it. You know, I found that all of this kind of stuff in like to experience on this, you know, in a room with the loud music, with the crowd, with people moshing, with people head banging, you know, with people just having a good time. Like that was just like addictive. That was like a drug to me. That was like, right, I need to do more of that. I need to go and see that. I need to go and hear yeah. that. And I'd be speaking to everybody I knew about it. I was like, just this thing. I'd go to gigs on my own as like, as a, a, a mid to late teenager, just because I didn't have a lot of friends who were really into that. I kind of made my own friends at the shows. I'd meet, I'd see familiar faces from other shows, and then I'd just get get chatting that's to people. The, and things that's that's the different. thing I think that most people don't understand, or some people don't understand. When we talk about live music, and we'll, we'll get, we'll obviously we'll get to this a, a little bit later, but not having live music or not being able to go to shows and that type of thing, there's there's the whole element of yes, it's a show. You pay your tickets, you go watch some bands, you cheer, you enjoy yourself. But there is a vast amount of communal sort of thing that goes on where you meet people of similar interests um, and talk to them about similar things and find a community. And that's how a scene and a whole community blossoms from there. God knows how many bands have been started by people being collectively together at a show of similar music. You know, I, I, I've met my wife at these type of things. You know, it's, people forget that there's an extended thing aside from the music going on at a show. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really good point and kind of leads me on in like my whole kind of story of music and me uh, and links back into another, I was listening to the um, ep- the episode where you interviewed Sal from Whiplash. Oh, yeah, fantastic, yeah. So um, one of the, the um, I'd seen flyers for her shows for a long time, but I'd never got to go got to go to any of them for one reason or other. Um, mm. But I remember going to see Decapitated in the Zanzibar yeah. with, uh, with da- uh, Dam um uh, it was decapitated, gorotted, dam, and dilacerate. And dilacerate were a, a band from Southport. Right. Um, so I was just like, wow, a local band today. That's amazing. So I was like, well, I'm gonna. I went to this gig and I was standing in the queue. Um, and so there's this. Uh, a lad's just started chatting to me. Uh, I'd went along with a friend, uh, um, a friend of mine, Jordy, and we were just at the gig in the queue. And then a, fr- a guy just started chatting to us, and he just started the conversation. He was like, oh, you guys here to see decapitated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we were chatting away and stuff. And at the time, me and me and Jordy had um, started trying to put together a bit of a band ourselves with another friend of mine, Arnie. Um, and we were looking for a vocalist. And then we were, speak- we were chatting to this guy, and he was just like, "Oh yeah, so my name's Joe. I've just moved here from Sheffield and go to university uh, in Liverpool. You know, I'm excited. I've just arrived today. I think always the day before, and I'm coming to this gig. So we just got just um, started chatting with him, and then he actually became the vocalist for my first ever band." Um, and the, his name, his name's Joe Stamps, and he's now the vocalist for Hecate Enthroned. Yeah. So, um, which uh, you know, is quite a big name, you know, in the black metal scene, and he's yeah, doing really so. well with yeah, those yeah. guys. So, um, but that, he was the. We lost that, or, or are losing that when we don't have a venue to to go to. We don't have a place 
you, you, you know, if that, if that was live streamed, say that gig, you, you would have never have met him. You know, exactly. that would have never, never have happened. Yeah, it's crazy. Like me and him, we still talk. We still get on really well, and we talk quite often. And we we joke about like the fact that you know back then, two thousand and four, maybe that was, we were a death metal show in Liverpool for you know a huge band that you know decapitated went big at the time, but they are now. And we were like you know we started our first band together, and now we're in our own respective bands who do well in our scene in our scenes. And it's it's crazy that we just met in a queue because he, we were the only three people in the queue. And we just That's start the chatting story of, of, of some of the greatest bands that have ever been, uh, where they've met at a show. But they've begun yeah, to yeah. be huge bands, you know, because those people met because of a love of something. So, you yeah. know, you think of like, you know, Lars and James meeting because of their love of Motorhead and stuff like that. You think of all these people meeting because they, they were out of place and that whole sort of kineticism, if you will, of being around people generates that and that's something that we will we'll get we'll most definitely get into that in a bit so when you're when you uh start sort of start off kind of writing your own stuff and putting your own sort of band together when does it translate from you being in the audience to you being on stage so the first band that i was ever in like the the band with uh, joe jordy and arnie uh, was a sadistic under torture which was just a it was just a bunch of people getting together just to try and see what we could do. We, we didn't really know what what genre we were going to be. We just kind of turned up. It's like we turned up on our first practice and we were like, right, what do we do? <laughs> um, so we, we, we just we just started making music the best we could. We, 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 none of us were really particularly great at our instruments. You know, we all tried really hard and we all wanted to do like, crazy you know fast music and we were just unable to so we, we we ended up playing something which was vaguely kind of experimentally like blackened death metal i guess okay. and as it was quite it was you know it was a really enjoyable experience and it kind of gave us our first in, introduction the first show we ever played was um it was in a, a venue called the dresler lounge on hardman street which was oh, actually yeah. um it was above a kebab shop yeah. And it was just around the corner from the picket where it was, funnily enough, where I used to go a few years earlier when I was first kind of yeah. go mingling into the Liverpool music scene. Mm. So that was our first um, first show. It was um, through a, a guy called Shawnee Sean, who I'm, I'm not too sure what he's doing with himself these days. He did he used to do quite a few shows, I believe, back in the day. Mm. But that was our first introduction into playing live. You know, we all had, we all had family members there and. Yeah. Stuff. So it, it wasn't necessarily the same kind of show that we would be uh, familiar with these days. Yeah. You know, but we uh, certainly put our all into it. We had a, we had a four or five songs, and um, so that was our first taster for as really playing in a band. It's, I think some of the other. Some... It's interesting that you say about um, you. You got in a room, you started kind of playing sounds that you like, and you didn't think of what you know what you were going to be. You were going to be host this or you're going to be you were going to be an extreme this or a black metal version of this or a death version of this or a slam but you weren't thinking of that you were just thinking of making the noises that you like to hear and i think that you know i put this to you joe i don't think the deftones when they first got together came into a room and said what we're going to do is we're going to do avant-garde rock metal i don't think yeah. anybody stood there and said that they let it grow naturally and i think that's something missing amongst bands that are getting together now where they immediately first think, what is our brand and what is what style of music are we going to play? Rather than just simply playing 
and the stuff that they play and enjoy comes out let someone else define that genre yeah it seems there are a lot of like the organic elements of music and bands has really got lost now you'll find bands who've got social media pages and it's before they've got any recorded material so people don't even know necessarily know what a band sounds like but you can get a a range of their merch already and they've got (laughs) you know they've got they've got a logo before they've even you know the band have even rehearsed and i'm like and it's like what like that's like it doesn't doesn't make sense to me how bands do that was what was it like after that first show you come off stage you sit and kind of you know talk to your family and stuff what did was did, was it good? Did you get a good vibe off it? Was it something you were like, I'm, I'm still uncomfortable, or you know, it was awful. Where were you with it? Oh, we we like all, we all came off stage and it was electric. You know, the, it yeah. wasn't exactly playing to like hundreds of people, as in yeah, maybe five people, but it was electric. Music and getting an applause, if you will. Even. Yeah, like the big. I think the biggest um, compliment that we got was the promoter came on stage as soon as we'd finished our set. Yeah. And um, and I, I don't remember the exact words he said, but it was something along like, uh, and you know, give it up for like the rising stars of the Liverpool metal scene. It was like what, rising wow. stars. This was our first show, and I was like, that's a nice right. and then, badge, isn't it? That's a nice moniker to have. <laughs> and as soon as we came off stage, he was like, right, I'm do, I'm doing this other show. Uh, I think at the Hotel California over in Birkenhead. Um, yeah. And do, do you just want to do it? And we were like, yep. And we're like, we didn't even think yes. about it. We didn't yeah, even yeah. ask the date. We just said, yeah. And then we figured it out afterwards. And we were like, right, we have, we, we don't really have good gear. We don't we have no way. We don't know how to get there and stuff. So we figured mm-hmm. it out. We, um, you know, we, we got lifts over there with what gear we had and we played. And it was just it, like, he was really actually quite supportive. Like, he mm-hmm. really kind of pushed us and again, we he put us on with some like really good bands. Uh, the the band that I remember the most from that period was uh, they were called Heaven Bleeds at the time, and I'm sure Dan would hate the fact that I'm going to mention that. But uh, they're now called uh, Eviscerax, um, okay. which uh, so they're, they're doing super well. They've you know yeah they've had several al- albums out, a few little um, lineup changes, but they're a really killer grind band. You know they were due to tour with um, Wormrot shortly, but obviously it's that's fell through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember watching those guys. Dan, the uh, the guitarist, he had a Napalm Death T-shirt. Back in the day, he used to wear a Napalm Death T-shirt at every single show. Yeah. And uh, I remember one time at a show where he had a he had a panic because he didn't have one, so he went out and bought one oh, from Quick. Oh, it's Yeah. <laughs> yeah so he had to wear that. He does. I don't think he does. Well, he certainly doesn't. <laughs> I love it. But, uh, would, would you would you categorise as the the scene and the metal scene around that time as being then particularly sort of strong? It, it's kind of hard to say because I didn't have, uh, I didn't really experience so many big shows which had the attendance of like, a public attendance uh, for any shows that I was playing. A lot I of the shows were like. I should reframe that. I should reframe that slightly. When I say strong, I mean creatively. Was there a lot of people doing a lot of things? Because I yes, know, there was I, definitely. I remember it being particularly healthy. I remember it being, you know, yes, okay, there was maybe 20, 30 people at a show. But remember there being lots of bands and quite a few sort of, you know, niches being pushed and sort of some interesting stuff going on, you know? Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of bands, like especially in Liverpool, like there was the there was the likes of Ogan, Hollow Point, which later on became Scare Tactics. Scare Tactics there, yeah. was, there was uh, Obsolete. There was a lot of bands. There was um, Diamantian. There was Dilacerate, who were all the two bands really pushing the heavier end of the game. Mm. And all the members of those bands have gone on to form other bands and be members of other bands, the likes of Ethereal, 
So it's it was there was a lot of people. Pretty, pretty fertile a lot, period, I think, for, for for some of the more extreme metal that was going on. I think it was particularly fertile, from what I can remember. Yeah, I'm just yeah, I, I reckon I, I reckon a lot of people who were into the music the best way for them to experience it was by being in bands and playing in bands and then they could play with other bands and yeah. learn more about it. And it, it was by being in a band, it was almost a vehicle and like a, a way to learn more about the music scene, to learn more. Yeah, about it, it, it's often, it's often seen, it's often a bit of a curse and a blessing, isn't it? Being in a band because it means, yes, you go to shows and you, you see bands that you hadn't seen before and you get talking to guitarists if you're a guitarist and, or a bassist or a drummer and you learn about gear and you improve yourself and all that sort of thing. But there's also the other side of it is that when you kind of see, when you, when you watch a band, especially if it's a particular instrument that you play, you kind of fixate on that instrument. I find it, I'm terrible for that. I'm a guitar player and I can't help when I go to see a band of almost kind of assessing the guitar player, which you shouldn't do. But even worse than that, because I've been tour manager, I kind of see the whole production now. And I always think, I wouldn't have put the cabs there or, or yeah. you know, and it's a curse as much as it's a, it's a blessing. So when you kind of, you're in the first sort of band and you're playing shows, how long does that go for before? How far are we away from say cancerous womb and stuff? How far are we away from that? I was quite a few years. I think really? um, I, don't, I don't remember what year it was. I joined cancerous rumors there, the late noughties. Right. I am um, maybe the early 2010s. So what's um, happening in the in-between then? Is it What's going on there? You're still playing with the band, or is it other bands kind of start to form now and you start to kind of perfect what you're doing? So a few a few years after uh, I was in Sadistic with this uh, with my, my first band, I was uh, I was friends with uh, like a lot of people around the, the Liverpool music scene. Maybe about eighteen months to two years into it, mm. I was uh, I was good friends uh, good friends with Matty Jones, and everybody in Liverpool knows Matty Jones. Mm. And um, we we had some similar music tastes. We'd been to a bunch of shows together, and we we had loads of you know friends in common. So he was like, uh, he said to me like he saw me in Crash Studios, which is where Sadistic used to practice, and he was like, oh so. Me and a bunch of guys, me and ha- um, him, Harry from uh, Obsolete at the time, uh, a guy called Greg, and another guy called Chris. Uh, he was like, you know, we're starting to do a band. Um, we haven't really gotten a name. We've got a few ideas, but we kind of do. We want to do like tech death, and we want to do heavier stuff. And I know you're into that, and I know you're you know, a bassist. So, and we need a bassist. So, do you want to come along? And I was like, yep, yeah, you know, I'll happily check it out. At the time, I didn't have a five string bass. I was still just playing a four string bass. I was playing pick style. Um, and he was just like, you know, we've got a couple of songs kind of like loosely put together. Come along to a jam. I'll lend you one of my, uh, like my five string bass. Cause he was the guitarist for the band, but he also played bass. Nice. Um, and he, he kind of, he said, come along to practice. And I was like, yep, sound. Yeah. I'd be, I'd love to play a band like playing heavy material. Cause, mm-hmm. uh, as I say, it's uh, sadistic. It wasn't necessarily the kind of music that I would listen to, but I enjoyed playing it. Right. But, so this other band presented me with the opportunity to play something that I was more of a fan of, and I was like, I, did, I thought it might give me an opportunity to also progress. So uh, that band uh, ended up developing into Neroma. Okay, all right, yeah. yeah so then we started around 2006, I believe, maybe 2005, mm. um, and the guys um, had a couple of the earlier tracks together. Um, Dingo's Ain't My Baby, Portuguese Takeaway, Purple Rain. They had a couple of tracks kind of put together, and I came along, and it was a huge kind of, it, it was a massive jump for It wasn't even a step. It was a, it was a leap and a bound to change from playing four-string kind of, you know, tremolo-picking kind of black metal to um, 
playing tech death with my fingers on a five string bass like it's just like it was uh, I, was, I don't know what i'm doing fraud. we've probably got a lot of like we, we certainly will have a lot of musicians listening to and there'll be uh, i imagine some bassist amongst them um what's let's talk bass for a little bit so in your in the first band you're playing with a pick and that facilitates being able to play fast to to a lesser or greater degree um, and then you move to the five string and then move to playing with, with your fingers. And um, was that purely from a feel point of view or was it a speed thing or what did you want to do? What, what facilitated that move? For me, it was the technicality. So the earlier, the earlier neuroma stuff, playing tech death and playing quite, you know, play, quite fast passages. Mm. I just couldn't do with a pick i was never very good with a pick i was right. uh, i couldn't really alternate pick and we didn't play particularly fast in sadistic anyway mm. um so to play some of the fast tech brutal death metal that neuroma was doing i was like i can't hit all these notes with a pick like, with, with a pick on my right hand i'd be yeah you know over time like i could do two fingers and three fingers and then other yeah. techniques which have developed over time over the years yeah. like i'm going to stand a better chance of being able to get definition out of the notes that i'm playing by switching to playing finger style mm. which is funny because i think i think now if i tried to go pl- back and play a pick with pick style I, w- I, w- I wouldn't know what i was doing i'd probably drop the pick constantly <laughs> it's interesting isn't it that, that a lot of uh sort of the great basis that people think of uh, a lot of them kind of especially the, the metal thing and obviously you know cliff is the, the one that springs to mind almost immediately is all all kind of preferred that sort of definition when they played, you know, they didn't want to get lost in the mix um, and simply play root note stuff, you know, to kind of explore a little bit. You know, it's it's Rob uh, got the job in Metallica. I, I, I firmly believe, apart from being great, but being, you know, playing with his fingers, it's, it's talked about a lot as being a kind of a real a real turning point for a basis to make the switch from a pick to to the uh, to the fingers, you know. It's like almost like a graduation. Did you find that? when you were playing then that you you felt as though you were moving up as a musician i definitely felt more capable i i I felt like i was able to play the stuff that i wanted to play better and i during that period i progressed probably more as a musician than i have at any other point and so i'd probably like sadistic was our first kind of foray into playing music and um trying to make noise and trying to just have fun with friends and then you know it was like a step up a little bit more serious but the music like the guys were really accomplished musicians like matty and harry really knew what they were doing yeah um, that reached um, your game by, by extension then yeah yeah so i i i kind of it made me practice more it made me work harder I eventually led to me to get my own bases very quickly obviously because i don't want to always lend somebody else's bass so yeah. I developed I developed very quickly at that time just to keep up with the guys. I enjoyed spending the time with them. We enjoyed practicing together. We enjoyed the material, and it really helped us helped me develop uh, understand bass better, understand you know heavy music better, the relationship between like what I'm playing, what they're playing, any interplay that we had, and me and me and Harry both had musical backgrounds uh, as in. In terms of studying, we knew like how to read, write, and play music. Um, Matty yeah. didn't have that kind of background, but he was also a very good guitarist. He'd been playing for quite a number of years, mm. so his his writing style was very erratic, which made my kind of more refined 
not probably not a very good way to use but kind of approach to how to write music um develop to match him so it was, right. a, it, was a, it was a very challenging time as a as a musician as a bassist but it, was, it, it led to like my fastest period of development yeah it's a, like to, almost a crash course isn't it because you like you've got to were you writing were you writing material as well um alongside them or were you were you kind of generating ideas or were you more producing ideas going okay that works maybe let's do that twice and then this or that type of thing so primarily the other guys were more in, involved with the writing elements of all and i would help more with the composition where mm-hmm. it was like how do we go from this section into this section and what do you know what can we do here so i would kind of throw ideas in that way so as while i was developing i am my actual ability to play yeah. Uh, I was slowly getting better at writing riffs and actually putting in musical ideas as opposed to simply compositional ideas. I've never been much of a musical composer. Uh, I wouldn't. I'd say I'm still not really. I can't. I'm, I'm able. I understand musical composition. I know how to put riffs together, but I'm not very write, good at writing actual music. Right. So I've always had. I've always had. I've quite often had more of a kind of supporting role when it comes yeah, to almost how good produced yeah yeah so what did this translate to to a live thing did was were the shows more aggressive was it were they bigger what what changed as a live uh, sort of perspective for, with neuroma so the first show that neuroma played live was in burnley actually we played in burnley before we played in liverpool right. um we we'd recorded a, a um a a demo with a few tracks uh, just rough uh, mm. in the studio which we put out so we had some material for people to actually listen to mm. uh, and then a friend of the band Chris Butterworth who's actually in crepitation now um, who's um, he at the time he was uh, and he still is in fact is still yeah, in castrated he was putting shows on in Burnley and he put us on a show opening for Dawn of Chaos from Hartlepool and mm. Dead Beyond Buried who were from down south uh, London ways um, and we, that was our first show, and we got a huge amount of feedback. Everybody was really impressed with us. We'd been we'd been practicing for and writing for over a year, and we'd uh, we'd have been at the point where we'd set up in crash studios like as if we were playing a show, mm. and we'd have rehearsals where we were playing as if we were playing a show. So then when we came to the stage, it wouldn't feel too alien. So we could yeah, really, you know, yeah. really, good, really put on a good performance. And we got a lot of good feedback and uh, a lot of a, a more kind of death metal, like purely death metal oriented crowd. Cause the people were there were there for a death metal show. And previously all the shows I'd played with sophistic were kind of mixed bills. So there were like mixed bill half days, mixed bill all days, which, mm-hmm. uh, which do, you know, they are a great thing to have. It's great to have mixed bills, but they're, brings in a crowd and you don't really get then get much of a crowd reaction because the crowd reacts differently to different bands so when there's a mixed billing you don't necessarily get a huge response yeah. so this was my first time playing a death metal show with other death metal bands in a death metal crowd of people who were uh, and that was like again we got a huge amount of feedback we got so much you know from that we got interest in other shows people got up from that people offered us other shows we ended up doing our first ever um, release official release with dawn of chaos who we played that show with the first uh, split cd we did um, northern discomfort was a split with dawn of chaos which came out at the back of that show because they were so impressed with like um you know our live show and our material they were really like blown away by how solid we were and the mu- music 
quality that we were putting out. So at this uh, at this point, are you kind of um, are you still working with promoters here? I'm trying. What I'm, I'll tell you what I'm leading here. Um, are you kind of working with promoters? Are you even thinking about your own shows yet? Because I'm in the background. I'm I'm thinking that you know, we'll, we'll, and we'll get to Slam and stuff. We'll get to that in UK Slam soon. But I'm thinking, when were the seeds of that kind of started? And it sounds like at this point, you you kind of just still with the feelers out about fans and the scene and stuff. Or do, did you were you kind of almost thinking we can do our own shows as well? So it wasn't for a very long time. Um, actually. I think I may have done my own show uh, while I was in Sadistic right. uh, before I'd even joined Neuroma. I just okay. don't remember what years because the the original drummer for uh, Sadistic was a guy called Pete Carroll. Uh, I've not spoken to him for a very long time. He, he left the band after not too long, but we did a show together in Zanzibar. Mm. Uh, and that was just so because there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity. There was, there was once here and there, but we thought we'd put on something ourselves uh, we did a i think it was uh, I, I believe we gave, gave it the title of no, november to december uh, dis, sorry november to dismember or dismember <laughs> or something along those lines we put a show on there yeah uh, tony the old manager of uh well the old owner of yeah. uh zanzibar uh, gave us he, he allowed us to do the show at venue as long as we had a certain amount of people come through the door yeah. Um, paying paying five pounds through the door, then the venue would be free. Yeah. So we 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 got some of our friends' bands um, from local area, but bands that we'd actually played with ourselves, bands that we had friends in, put a bit of a mixed bill um, together just to kind of put on a good event and get some good bands together. You when uh, being a musician yourself and being in bands yourself, you'll know that you'll meet a band and you'll be like, oh, we should you know play a show together sometime. So there was a lot of that in the early days. It's like, oh, you know, it'd be good to you know play a show together. That's just maybe bear with me one of the things that, that, that the internet has gave us. Um, that now, you, yes, you meet bands at a show when you talk and you go, okay, you play this and we play that. That makes sense. Let's do some kind of show together. But now, bands can listen to your music online and then go, hey, we're based in Scotland or we're based in Edinburgh or whatever it may be. Why don't you come up to our show? Um, and we'll come down to your show because we've already heard your band. That's probably one of the positive things about the, the metal community. There's a there's there's a, an almost a kind of like social net, network for want of a better word where you can talk to other bands, uh, uh, kind of like you would at a show. But before that, before the internet and Facebook exploded, you had to do that. You had to kind of t- talk to a band and go, hey, you know, where, where do you live? Where are you based? Okay, that's, and you kind of had to piece the show together yourself, like, and it was a. Uh, it was a wonderful organic time that we've lost that side of it, but I think we've maybe gained with the uh, with the internet has meant that someone can go on and go, oh, there's this like you know death metal band from Swindon, they can go and play this show somewhere else or whatever it may be. And now I think we've kind of that's probably one of the more positive things I think that's come from the internet. That yeah, it's to getting the exposure to other bands around the country yeah. and be, being able to just get that you know that first initiation, that first offer, that first kind of gig swap. Um, getting to these other places and just meeting new people, playing to new, playing to fresh ears and stuff. Mm. So, so what was the what's the next level then moving forward after Neuroma? What happened there and how long did that go for? So Neuroma was active for quite a few years. We um, mm. in two thousand and seven we released the um, Northern's Comfort Split, 
uh, with Donna Kirst. We carried on playing a lot of shows around the country. Um, sadly, we never really made it out into Europe. We um, It was an early band for a lot of us, so we, we didn't really know what we were doing outside of the rehearsal room. So a lot of it was, as you say, meeting bands, meeting people, meeting people. other promoters. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, were all, we had a pretty good reputation in the early days of always being that band who plays a show, but is always at the front for all the support bands. Yeah. So it was always like the the Naroma guys who were at the front headbanging and you know you know getting like cheering on like the support like the any other bands who were on the same show as us whether you were on before or after us we'd get there before doors opened we'd never turn up halfway through a show and we'd support all the other bands so we had a good reputation for that so we got had a good relationship with other bands because they were always like oh thanks you know you know there was nobody else at the show but you guys were at the front and stuff or there was like yeah. or there's, it, the there's an enormous amount to be said for that isn't it i mean people if you're a young band listening to this and there will be some young metal bands who've just started out here now i'm telling you now even above the music it, you should be good otherwise why are you playing live but you should be a good band anyway or at least try to be good but above that is how you are socially and how you act. If you turn up midway through a band set or don't turn up at the sound check or fuck around with other people's gear or or just generally a pain in the ass to be around, that will carry more weight than anything you could ever do. That will it, it just wrecks it. If you a band's are great to work with, um, that's the first thing that gets you in a door most of the time. Just being a good to work with band who genuinely just turn, like you say, watch the band and 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 get to the front and stuff and all that type of thing. That's way more important than even anything you play. Anything you play should be good, obviously. But how you interact with people at a show, certainly sound checking and that type of thing, hugely important. And it's one of the biggest things I tell the younger bands that they have to get their fucking shit together. That they can't, you can't be a dickhead um, because we're all in this together. It's meant to be a scene for Christ's sake, you know. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. A lot of people are. You, you can really see the people who are out for it for themselves, or the mm. people who are in, involved, like in a scene where you become so entre- entrenched in part in part of something, mm. in part of you know. Like we, I remember one show, Neuroma travelled up to Edinburgh for the first time, and we played a show which um, actually led on to me, my introduction to the guys from Cancerous Room uh, yeah. before I joined them. Um, because we we went up there to go and play a show with Ingested and Desecration, and maybe Discarnate, uh, and there was a few other bands on there. One called Psychoanalysis, which some of the members went on to become Party Cannon. Oh yeah, uh, and we were we were up at the front. We were playing. We were we were at the front of the show for every single um, for every band. We were drinking with every single band. We were talking to every single band, and we came away from that being like, you know, nobody at that show, like we we knew some of the people, but not too well. Mm. and they were, every, we came away from that show everybody knowing who we were just because we had spoken to everybody and people may not have even bothered ever listening to our band before but they would know who we were so we'd exchange yeah. kind of contact details and they're like oh i believe you're in a death metal band you know link me to your stuff and then you know we'll try and get you up so just building that relationship they might not even know you're in a band or know mm. what the level of your you know band is and yeah give you such an opportunity just by having that kind of friendly interaction with them and that's something it's which i've found myself incredibly important yeah incredibly important like i've some of the, some of the the best bands that i've booked bands that have worked with bands that have bought over from, from europe or the other side of the world from my events in the past mm. are the result of interactions that i've had with people you know while i've had a few beers and we've had a laugh and then about 
like, oh, yeah. so you're in a band, oh, that's cool, let's swap details and stuff, and I'll check out the band, I'll be like, oh, yeah, cool, that's, that's our help, and it's all based on, you know, a friendly interaction, a good friendship, and something that builds from that, and uh, I, as you say, I think a lot of that is, uh, is uh, I'd, I'd like to say that it's not completely gone, but a lot of it is, sadly. Yeah, it's almost like, I brought this up on a, on a previous show as well, is it's almost like there's, there's this kind of invisible fight for positions. Like, if somehow your band does well, it's taking something from another band. It, and it just, it's, it's bizarre. It's, it's bizarre, this weird thing that goes on. And it's bizarre, this kind of pre-rock star thing that happens where people go, well, I have to act like a rock star and be kind of aloof and that type of thing in order to become one. And it's all bullshit. It's all fucking nonsense. I've been, you know, grateful enough to work with some of the, some very, you know, famous people and people who have been rock stars. And none of them are dicks during the sound check and loadings and stuff and around other people. In fact, all the greatest people I've worked with have all been super nice and accommodating and, and that type of thing. It's incredibly important. So it's interesting that you say about kind of booking and stuff. When do we, how far are we away then from, uk slam fest and stuff and how far are we away from that so again it's probably quite a while the uk slam fest it's as a as a name and a brand uh, that didn't actually begin till 2015 it was the oh, first okay. year that we ran uk slam fest i'd done yeah. a couple of shows here and there i booked a couple of shows in basement 20 um which is how i and basement 20 and the pilgrim back in the back in the in the day i've done yeah. a bunch of shows there but i'd never really thought of myself as a promoter i was more just a facilitator why, why did who, you why did you do those first shows what was what what, what made you go okay I, i'm going to book my own show similar to the november to dismember show it was um friends bands wanting to play together yeah. Um, and the the need for to have a show which filled in a date on a tour and people were on a people needed the help. Mm. Um, so I, I put on the first couple of shows. Um, one of the early shows I did in Basement Twenty was for Pighead, who was um, some guys who were met over in Germany uh, when I was over there in two thousand nine. I met those guys on a drunken night out, made friends, swapped details, and then eventually brought those guys over to do a little UK tour where I'd help them out. Um, and put them on in basement 20 and spoke to friends there and other relation uh, other like kind of promoter friendships that i'd made to help them do their first little four date uk tour um so it was more just i i'd never wanted i never thought of myself as a promoter somebody who wants to be a promoter and wants to post shows i just wanted to help bands mm-hmm. so i wanted to help other people learn about bands that i enjoyed mm-hmm. i wanted to give bands opportunities to play i wanted to bring friends bands from other parts of the uk to come to liverpool to play to people in liverpool in the metal scene because i'd be i'd say i'd be saying to my friends oh oh yeah neuroma or sadistic played with this killer band uh, from wherever that may be and i'm going to bring them here so everybody in this city can then find out about them they don't have much going on they don't have a cd they don't have an album but they do have a couple of songs check them out Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of it kind of developed from there, and then as time went by, more and more people were like, "Well, your show is pretty good. You know what you're doing." Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I remember I organised a show about three years ago for a band called Mare, and I had um, the guys uh, from Just Turin playing. And this is Turin. There was um, Anti Hero who became, went on to become God Complex, yeah, and. Yeah. 
uh, and Kurt Malalta supporting. Kurt Malalta being from South uh, South Ways. Mm. And um, I had a I remember providing the rider and uh, the drummer of Corrupt Moral Alter, Tom Dring, also from Vagrant Recordings, um, said to me, he was like, you can tell that you are in a band because you know what to provide bands on a rider. Mm. You know what you're doing. And that was a big, really got quite a big poignant moment for me because I thought, I've never thought of myself as a promoter, even though technically mm. by organising shows, I am the promoter. Yeah, yeah. But, that, that was the first time I realized that, you know, I know what I'm doing because I came for, at it from a musician's point of view. I, I am, I've been in bands where I've turned up shows and I know what I would expect to be there in terms of, you know, what information I need, what's going to be provided, what is required to be provided. So I would always take it on and uh, I'd always take that kind of approach. And then over the years, people started to recognize that in me. So yeah. when I put it on a show, well, regardless of the level of success of the show, the bands were always happy because they always were provided with all of the information yeah. that they needed. I always say communication is the absolute, the biggest thing of success. I, I raised this with Sal and said that, you know, uh, touring bands remember good promoters and good venues. They remember them. They really do. And they don't remember, you know, the fact that there's loads of people watching a band or any of that or how many people or how many tickets they sold or anything like that. They remember who did a good rider. They remember who had good showers. They remember who treated them well, who paid them when they got to the show and all that type of stuff. And they remember them. Uh, and it, and it, honestly, even now when I look at a tour itinerary and I see a couple of venues, I think of the promoter. I think of the venue owners and stuff, the people that do the riders and the people that organize stuff at the parking and things like that. I think about those things first. and that. That, that's what the touring cycle is born from those places. So it's interesting you try to kind of say that you essentially just fell into it out of a, a need to want to get to want to get music out there to provide a platform for people's bands and a place for people to go to watch said bands. Is do you think we're maybe losing that or are we still got that? I think I, I can certainly speak of. Um, Z- I talked to Xander from Halfway Homes and uh, pro- promotions, and he. He de- definitely that's his mo to kind of produce a, 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 a show. Are we maybe lacking some people in the community who are that passionate that they're going to go? Okay, I'm going to put the show on myself. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's why I've done it. Like over the last few years, I've been doing quite a few shows. At, uh, mm. It's now called Outpost. Previously, it was Maguire's. Yeah, uh, and I was actually responsible or co-responsible for the first ever show at uh, Maguire's Pizza and the last ever show at Maguire's when it before it changed its name to uh, Outpost. Yeah. The first show was, um, which was a, it's a, an amazing story. Kind of, there's a guy called Kabir De Silva from Liverpool who puts on the occasional show. He's played in a few bands here and there, and he asked me for some assistance with um, a room which he'd found because he had a, he had a gig book for some Doom bands which he was due to put on in the Pilgrim, but the venue was double booked. So he ended up finding a room next to his dad's thrift shop on um, on Renshaw Street. Um, yeah. So his dad owns, a, I think it's 69A or 61A Renshaw, which is a thrift shop. Right. Uh, next door to it, there was like a little small pizza bar. Uh, and he knew that there was a big empty room at the back of it. So we asked them if he could make a if he could put a gig on there. And he were like, are you sure? It's a bit of a mess. It's just storage and stuff. And yeah. he was like, 
like, well, as long as you don't mind, then I'll do it. And then he spoke to me yeah. and me and him went down there, cleared out a bunch of stuff. There was like old fridge freezers and a pool table. And <laughs> it was like, no, no PA system. But we managed to get a guy to come down with a PA system where we had to plug in the extension uh, lead up to the flat upstairs because there was no plug sockets. There was no microphone stand. So we improvised and duct taped a microphone to a stepladder. Um, and so it was like this and we managed to we, we pulled down about 25 30 people to this back room yeah uh, and it was all out it was all built out of the necessity of one like mm. of providing said platform it was meant to be in another place but instead of just cancel on the show we were like nope we'll find somewhere else we'll do it somewhere else and we did this kind of show in the back of this pizza bar yeah. loads of people came down loved the pizza loved the fact they could get pizza and go and watch bands and um, then, obviously, the, over time, the venue just kind of developed. Because it got a, a permanent sound guy, mm. um, Ian, um, yeah, has got a permanent setup there. He's got a permanent setup there. I I used to get, um, work with him for shows in Basement 20 and mm. in The Pilgrim. And then um, we moved, one reason after another, things moved to Maguire's. Now he's got a permanent setup there. The venue's got a, a yeah. little drum riser. It's got a smoke machine, it's got lights, it's got a fully fitted PA, it's got a laminate floor instead of a torn carpet, and it's developed massively. So it was all, something like that was so organic because it was like, we want to help friends, we want to put this show on, we want people to to put music on for our friends to come and enjoy mm. because we are so involved in it. But it's not something which happens a lot anymore, but the likes of Xander and Halfway um, halfway doing so many shows in the downstairs of Jacaranda doing, I went to a show with Monasteries earlier in this year, and it was because the kind of genres that they're putting on um, aren't necessarily catered for in Liverpool, so they're like, well, instead of us just being like, oh, screw it, we'll go to Manchester or somewhere else for all the shows, they're like, we'll just do it ourselves. Yeah. So it's kind of like a nice DIY aesthetic to it, it's just like, you know, why should I not let these gigs happen when, mm. when I can put them on, you know, with a little effort in my own area? Yeah. It's like, I love the people forget, or maybe don't necessarily are aware that when a scene begins, when a scene kind of um, begins and becomes kind of like uh, the beginning, beginnings of a scene, shall we say, when it kind of opens up, um, everybody benefits from it. So it's when when kind of a group of musicians and the scene sort of go becomes what it is. The people around it blossom as well. It's the old adage of a high tide raises all ships. So a good scene means that a venue gets more people in. Therefore, the venue sort of invests more in that music, gets you know, better equipment, better functionality, and what have you. And it, 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 the, the venue itself spends money on the decor, spends money on the bar and that type of thing. And that, th- that thing improves as well. Then you get someone who be- can become a dedicated sound guy like Ian, who can hone his craft, learn and enjoy what he's doing. And he becomes swept up in it as well. And one of the, 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 the reasons why music and certainly live music is so important is because of all the tributes that that river runs from. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, all those sort of people's applications, like if you're a sound guy, if you do lights, or if you're a bar owner, or if you're a venue owner, all those things flourish with a good live scene. It's not just the music. It's not just the venue getting money. It's not just that. There's a wonderful blossoming that happens from the surrounding explosion, if you will. Um, and we've lost that, I think, slightly, with people realizing that live music apparently could be rep- replicated while just watching a video or watching something on a mobile phone 
And in reality, going to a live show is you feeding that river, is you feeding that whole thing to blossoms. Like I say, many people's careers, that's where people's first sound guys start. That's where people who crew or tech for someone or do backline stuff starts at the local scene. It's not just the music, it's not just the musicians, it's the whole thing around it. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, there's very few, there's um, probably only ever Kiss who started out as, who started as a big band. Yeah. Um, but every, every big band started as a small band playing to, you know, in local bars and pubs. You know, all of the great names start somewhere, all of the big, crew members all of the big sound techs all of the big you know everybody. sparks the light guys the the venues the all tour managers everybody starts somewhere so it's nice to kind of be involved with the diy elements of it and be at that grassroots level on a lot of you know platforms so i mean we're, we're definitely ladies and gentlemen we're definitely going to get joe back on the show because joe is like the epitome of a defender of the faith as i often like to call these people in our community and we, you know, we're definitely going to some of the other bands he's been in. We haven't even started with the bands that he's currently in. But let, you know what? We've gone an hour and a half. Fuck, I don't care how long this takes. We're going to get every, as much as we can in on this show, ladies and gentlemen. So right now, where what what band are you in now? And kind of where are you at now as a promoter? So if we jump forward a little bit, um, we're, I'm currently playing in Crepitation mm-hmm. and Colpoclysis. Um the crepitation I actually joined in 2009 while I was still in Aroma. Um, yeah. I joined them because Matty from Aroma was playing in, um, he was playing in crepitation. He'd been playing in them for maybe a year. Crepitation had started in 2005 in Manchester uh, and I probably had more lineup changes than Napalm Death over the years. <laughs> but um, I remember I was at a Neuroma practice once, and Matthew Coleman came in in 2009. And he was like, oh, so, Joe, you're going to Death Feast Open Air in Germany, aren't you? I was like, yep. And he's like, why? I was like, why? He's like, oh, you're, you're going to play bass for Reputation. I was like, um, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was just like, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And he'd switched from playing bass and Reputation to playing guitar. Mm. So I then joined crepitation i've been in the band since we had a bit of a break between 2010 and 2013 um just because it was never really a full-time band for any of us it was just a bit of a side all of the members were in different bands mm. and i won't even open that kind of worms that's um, a, a huge <laughs> family tree of bands yeah that, you know, and, this, out and the style of music then for someone listening i would suggest checking out uh, crepitation most definitely and um, what sort of style are we are we kind of in now with that so that's say? kind of uh, pre and earlier earlier crepitation was um was like brutal slam death metal mm-hmm. it was it was heavy it was fast but it was also fo- heavily focused on uh, slam riffs and groove riffs mm-hmm. um and it was all it always had the very silly kind of vo- vocal approaches the silly logo it always had a bit of a tongue-in-cheek kind of humorous aesthetic it was a very english mm-hmm. approach to um death metal i thought there was a lot of um, sam- a lot of um, nods towards the likes of Alan Partridge uh, in the early days, and it was always just a, it was all well, it still is just about having fun these days with the mm-hmm. lineup changes and the members that are in the band now. We kind of play a little uh, faster, more erratic, more hectic, and uh, we kind of give it we kind of gave it the subgenre of we, we came up with the title of slamming brutal death grind. Because it kind of encompasses right. all of the different facets of all the different yeah. members that we feel lead, you know, lead it, it, to the isn't sound. Isn't it interesting? I like I, when listening back to the crepitation and stuff. Isn't it interesting that you can have fun 
and and I have a comedic prose in a, in a in a brutal uh, band, you know, in a, in a death band. You can have that. People would sometimes would say that, that that's something of a, a misnomer that the two can't exist. But it's wonderful how it does. You know, you go back to something like Lawnmower Death and stuff like that, that mixed comedic, almost Monty Python, almost, you know, comedic stuff going on um, within that. And I think that's that's very English, that, isn't it? It's a very British thing, that, I think. I don't really, you don't really see an awful lot. You, know, you get some of it in Europe a little bit now. Um, but I think that's quite something very unique to the English sort of death and, and, and slam scene when they do stuff where they mix comedy. There's a wonderful comedic thing, you know. You get everything like Raised by Owls and stuff and, and Footprints in the Custard. They've kind of pulled the comedy element into it, and metal doesn't get enough props for the comedic and tongue-in-cheek stuff that we do and where we look at ourselves and, and do that, you know. We don't think it gets enough props. Yeah, totally. I, I'm, uh, there's a, I remember like in the, in the early Naroma days, like a lot of our songs were kind of, we used to cite Brass Eye as our biggest influence. As opposed yeah. to any bands, we'd say that we are a brass eye themed band almost because we were always talking <laughs> yeah. about all the crazy shit we see on the news and all this stuff. But not we took a yeah. kind of pun. Uh, all of our songs were pun titles like "Gash in the Attic" or "Semi Skimmed yeah. Milf" and stuff like that. We always cha- played around with words and had mm. a, had a lot of fun with it. And uh, Encrepitation took it to another level. But there was always jokes whenever there was something happening in the in the world. It was like, right, which band's going to get on this? kind of thing which has happened in the uk first is it going to be neuroma is it going to be castrated is it going to be fetal juice and yeah. I, I think fetal, i think fetal juice are the absolute masters when it comes to so. uh, puns and comedy when it comes to death metal without going to the kind of as you say monty python uh, lengths of the likes of it's, raised by owls who are comedy like geniuses right metal seems ripe for parody and and the reason why i believe metal is so strong is because it realizes the ridiculousness of some of the stuff that's out there and some of the stuff that it's done in its history and can immediately turn it on its head. And, and you know, it's like I'm always very enamored by someone who um, who doesn't take themselves very seriously, if you know what I mean, it allows them to be like someone to make fun of them in a, in a light way. I'm always very, you know, that sh- for me that shows a very balanced person, you know, that they're comfortable enough with themselves that someone can take their neck and it's fine. Um, and I, I love that metal can do that. Metal is probably uh, one of the most misunderstood genres, certainly the heavier end of it, of its ability to mock itself, you know. And, like, Field is a perfect example of that. I've knows all the stuff that's gone before and ridiculous titles of death songs and stuff like that and, and switched it all on its head. I think it's beautiful when that happens. You, know, you get bands like Evil Scarecrow that are very knowingly, you know, that they are taking ascending up something. But they're doing it with an earnestness. It's I love that. Like I think it's fabulous. Yeah, it's all it's it's all about taking ownership. It's all about mm. you know making it yourself and being true to yourself because people, especially in the metal scene, have got a good eye and a good ear for somebody when they're bullshitting. And yeah. when people are trying to when when people are trying to be over serious, people can be a bit like, mm, yeah, I'm I'm not really buying it. You can't buy into mm. it. But if people who've got a sense of humor show that they've got a sense of humor it comes across more earnest and people can buy into it then. So people find it more funny. So when the likes of fetal juice, especially their ex vocalist, Sammy always had a way with words when introducing songs that people would instantly know that he found it funny. So you found it funny. So it kind of again, gave you that bond with the band. You found, you were able to interact with the, uh, the elements of humor in all of it. What, what's interesting as well is when it backdoors heavy music. And by that, I mean that the, the, the band does something, 
ridiculous or amusing or whatever it may be, but the riff contained within there is fucking savage. And it yeah, kind of always yeah, exactly. back the riff in, you know, and you kind of, oh, shit, they're fucking heavy as well, like, you know? Yeah, you get the best of both. Exactly. So, accreditation, um, uh, at this point, when did you start, did you start to tour outside of the UK in Kre- with accreditation? So, you yeah, my, fir- my first ever show with accreditation was Death Feast Open Air, which was... Oh, a, you did say, sorry, yeah, you said, so that was, that's, that's a bit of weight there, because that's a pretty, that's a very well-respected thing. You go into a band, you know, almost cold was that tough like oh yeah it was very tough and the, the worst part was that uh, we played we played that show it was mm. it was a terrible show we didn't play very well at all the band <laughs> had been going for a while but yeah. i'd not actually met all of the band members at the time and i'd, I'd wow. never had a rehearsal with them um so i learned the whole band set uh, in basically in matty's bedroom uh, and a couple of a couple of run-throughs like after fall straight after a neuroma practice a neuroma practice so i'd learn everything like that i turned up met the drummer for the first time and met the um other vo- one of the vocalists for the first time um introduced myself and then we went you know we were ready to go on stage then so wow. uh, we had we had, a, we had a, a bit of an issue where we ended up playing a different slot on a different day okay. uh, i won't really go into the details on that but uh, a certain member of the band didn't turn up <laughs> Wow. So, um, so, so we we were well prepared, but then we weren't very well prepared, and then uh, it caused some sound issues, and we played terribly. Um, but it was still a massive experience. We we ended up playing to like a few thousand people, and it was mind blowing for me. Be, yeah, that's going to be like that's that's you real deep end stuff, both musically having to play with a band you've not played before and what have you, but also at this time, what year are we talking here now? Then so that was two thousand and nine. So around like yeah, around like the the sort of you know. Uh, midways through of 2000s um there's an explosion of sort of this type of thing in 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 europe most definitely isn't there yeah there's some of the festivals over there were getting bigger and bigger so the mm. likes of mountains of death nrw death fest uh, mm. death feast open air obscene extreme uh, these festivals were really starting to get a lot of i remember seeing you know, a lot of traction extreme and being like this is ridiculous it was huge well, funnily, that was the second show I ever played with Crepitation because we played <laughs> we played later that same year at Obscene Extreme at three o'clock in the morning. We were the second to last band of the festival, and that, that like that was a, another like momentous occasion to find all of these. Like it was a big introduction to like the power violence, grindcore, hardcore punk kind of stuff, which I hadn't really fully experienced or explored yeah. before. Europe, Europe was kind of mixing it up really well, wasn't it? It was mixing all those hardcore crossover elements. It was mixing in death and uh, and and kind of that thing. And it was there was a wonderful schism. It was a wonderful sort of mixing pot in Europe where people were just trying all kinds of crazy stuff. There was some really great stuff happening. Yeah, it was it was a really really good like amazing time of innovation musically. A lot of bands really starting to smaller bands making a like headway for themselves so it was it was amazing to see and to be part of that as well yeah because this at this point now we're, we're having the, the sort of shift with the with the internet and stuff and things like that and music becoming more available and you get someone like Bathory who, uh, who previously which was difficult to get hold of music or previously admo- admonished for political views or whatever is now becoming available and getting heard and and is injecting itself into what bands are doing and, and you find it, there's, like I say, a wonderful mix and pot of stuff happening, probably because of the internet and the availability of music. 
but certainly I found out a lot about about a lot of the a lot of these festivals, a lot about about a lot of bands and stuff through like the rise of MySpace, yeah. especially which gave you uh, an instant access social media platform to go and listen to a sample or a song of a band, and then somebody would recommend something, or you'd find you'd hear a song on somebody's profile and. The amount of bands I just discovered just through, like, I, I discovered aborted through them having a song on somebody else's profile on MySpace, and I was like, "Who's this? Why? Why is this blaring at me through the speakers?" And I was like, "Oh, it was amazing." I think it was Hecatomb, the song which was playing at the time, and I was like, "Wow!" So that's that, like hearing those bands with through like new bands which I hadn't heard before previously. I'd, I'd heard them for, as we've discussed already, but also from the likes of like the Drilling the Vein, Roadrunner Records, music videos and stuff like that. Yeah. So like. To, to actually get more into the, the death metal world and hear about all of these bands. For who... me as well, it was like, uh, it was interesting to, like you say, about record labels, like there was stuff like Nuclear Blast and things like that. There were, I, I kind of went to them and, and all the bands that they looked after, and that kind of helped me get into a lot of a lot of acts as well. There was a lot of great stuff going on there, nearly the days of Roadrunner and what have you. But these yeah, were fantastic bands. Century Media. And... Yeah, Century Media particularly, like, you know, uh, there was some great stuff coming from caskets as well uh, and it was just a, this wonderful thing of like record labels specifying in particular sort of uh, groups of music which i really enjoyed which we made we, we most definitely lost a little bit of that now so so what what your increpitation as well as being in in uh, in, in uh, am i pronouncing it right colpocytis yeah colpocytis colpocytis there you go <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, so I'm I'm currently in Colpocytes as well. So mm. I was good friends with the members of Colpo. Um, they um, they actually just started as a three piece. Um, Steamo, just a guitarist, started the band. But after hearing the likes of Cephalotripsy and these uh, three piece slam bands, and he just wanted to play something really aggressive, really heavy, really slammy, really uh, kind of just knucklehead riffs. And I uh, I joined them. Actually, I played one show with them at a Mosh Against Cancer cancer. Uh, event in Liverpool in the Magnet, just as um, they were playing a, a, a fairly big, reputable show, and I thought I'll, I'll learn the stuff and I'll play with you guys. So it kind of bolster the sound a little bit, and um, I didn't really think much about it. And then they were like, "Oh, do you want to play bass on the album?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, sure." And at the time, I was um, I was in Neuroma, I was in Cancerous Womb, but Cancerous Womb were actually coming towards an end, so I was thinking, I was I was feeling. Cancerous Room might call it a day, so I might join um, might join Culper Crisis full-time. So I ended up joining them um, and also um, recording their, their first full album as well, Floping Fallout. So um, I, I recorded the album, joined the band, and just got announced as a full-time member of that. So um, both bands have been fairly active uh, in parallel since then, as well as anything else that I've been doing. There's, there's some there are some out there that would suggest that you can't be in multiple bands because there's you it's required to have multiple headspaces now i've got them and so, talked about this a lot on previous shows i think that's nonsense i think you can be in as many bands as you want to be into it doesn't really matter but how do you how do you differentiate with the bands and stuff do you do you, do you as you, are you do you have different roles within each band do you write differently for each band what what, what changes so the way that it's fell with these two bands with Crepitation and Colpoclysis, uh, because I've been in Crepitation for so long, uh, the lineup that we've got now, I'm kind of running with the vast majority of the composition, which is funnily, uh, funny after saying earlier, I'm not much of a composer, but I've, <laughs> I've, I've definitely built up my chops over that 
through studying music to an academic level and through all my my kind of history and activities with bands over the years so i've I've taken the forefront for writing for reputation at the moment and uh, the irony and part of the um, the humorous incestuous element of the uk death metal scene is that both copper crisis and crepitation share a guitarist and bassist now in myself and steve moses right. so um so steve is largely the composer for uh copper crisis he wrote with the um uh, with the drummer uh, well the ex-drummer carl he wrote the first full album uh, for open fallout so i didn't actually have any compositionally composition input on that other than any kind of bass that i added to it um, so when I joined the band, we've worked with Cobb Crisis have written new songs together since I joined the band, um, where I've had some input, but I usually give my ideas to Steve, he'll then make them more Colpo sounding. And now the way that me and Steve work, he'll give, he'll introduce song uh, riffs to me for crepitation and I'll make it more crep sounding. So that right. way we can kind of introduce each other's ideas. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll, before the lockdown, we were both having quite regular uh, writing sessions uh, where we'd just come up with riffs and I'd be like, we'd be sitting there trying to play a really crazy tech riff for a Cold Crisis song and then one of us would be like, hang on a minute, wrong band. This, uh, the, save this <laughs> riff, let's record it or let's uh, let's film ourselves playing it, but we're going to put it in the other band because it makes it fits musically with the other one. On the very base level of how to keep things separate is we, um, we play in different tunings. <laughs> okay, so we, um, sure. So, um, so crepitation will be in B standard, and copper crisis will be in G sharp standard. So we have different instruments. So I'll have two bases. Yeah, I've got two bases. He's got two guitars. I think he's got more than two guitars. Yeah. But well, I've uh, set up one guitar for each band, so we can then, so we know what kind of mood, what kind of approach we've got, what bass we've got, what guitar we've got, what, like what tuning we're in. So um, have you had to pull double duty live yet? We've done it a few times. We, uh, yeah. we the, the last show that we played before the lockdown was in uh, in Moscow in Russia, yeah. uh, where where both bands played. Um, so we both had to do WT. We've done uh, done it a couple of times now, uh, mm. and I'd, I'd actually done it previously with Neuroma and Crepitation on some shows, and Neuroma and Cancerous Room on some shows. Just, yeah. I just like being on stage, really. <laughs> I love that when I go to like uh, there's been a couple of death metal shows I've been to, and um, I watch the changeover. And two of the guys don't do anything because they're on the next band. Yeah, they'll <laughs> just come, like, come off, go and get a drink, and then yeah, come on. yeah. Although I did see one guy um, just change his t-shirt, and I thought, fair play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just so, just so it looks different for the photographers. So, yeah, just so it looks different on the photos. You know, <laughs> it's all right. So you talk about the lockdown, and we can't not talk about it because it's so, you know, it's so prevalent in what we're doing. Is it affecting the writing? Is it affecting what you do as a musician? So it's it's been a bit strange. So obviously it affects how the band is writing because we can all write individually, but we can't really write together and bounce out ideas off each other as we would in a rehearsal room. So obviously me and Steve haven't been in the studio together to actually you know, have writing sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, just at the beginning of the lockdown, I bought myself an interface so I could actually... Uh, record and um, try and make some demos at home so for the first two weeks i've actually been off on lockdown now for nine weeks mm-hmm. um my, my my girlfriend was ill um, before lockdown right. and she was she was made to stay at home and because of my uh, career and uh, yeah. because of my job they said that i wasn't allowed to also go and work because she was unwell so i had a couple of weeks off sure. without being able to work from home 
um, which I always try to be. Is I was like, right, I'm going to be off work. I'm going to be super productive, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I was at I was at first. Uh, I got yeah. I was able to do some. Uh, I, I wrote three songs for Crepitation, or at least put put riffs together, which kind of roughly resembled a song. I was able to use the the interface board to kind of record a like rough bass kind of playthrough of the song. So and um, I wrote up all the music and tabbed it up and sent it to the guys to actually look into. Um, but it was it's hard for our bands to really practice together because a lot of the ideas are simply just ideas until we jam them together. It's the yeah. exploration of those ideas that can't happen in a, an isolated environment, isn't it? It's the uh, you 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 can write a riff and stuff and you can put that together and have various sections to a song. But there's a wonderful thing that happens when those group of musicians get into a room and the push and pull of back and forth irons that riff out. You can't get that remotely. You just can't. You just can't. You can string stuff together and you can play with someone else over the internet and via cameras and stuff, but you'll never get that immediacy of of you playing something and reacting to someone else playing something also someone playing something wrong so say you're playing and you hit the wrong note but it somehow works or it goes in a different way or you know you, that kind of whole jamming aspect of it is lost in isolation isn't it yeah totally like, because you just you don't the audio quality of what you're hearing is different you know what you can see is different you know you can, if you're if you're playing and watching each other's instruments you, can, you kind of miss those things but there's always like happy mistakes where you play a riff wrong but it actually sounds good or there's a different um like movement that the bass does which the guitar doesn't do which sounds good yeah. and it's all these happy accidents well, um, one of the one, what I remember, there's two songs that I was listening to recently, and uh, the, the stories behind them were interesting. The first one was um, "Beyond the Realms of Death" by Judas Priest, and that initial riff or collection of notes was played by Les Binks, I believe, on who's a drummer, just while he was sitting around in the studio, and they were like, "That's good, that's a song." Also, like "Suicide Solution" by by Ozzy, Randy was playing that whilst he was practicing, warming up, and Ozzy goes, "That's a riff," and he's like, "What?" And he's like, no, that's a riff. And that becomes a riff. Those moments can only happen when a group of musicians gather. And it's, it can't happen any other way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny you mention those. But I've had similar occasions in the past. Um, as you'll know from when when you're when a band's on stage and you do the, a line check or a sound check mm-hmm. and you go for all the individual instruments, uh, there was always a riff that I used to play when, with Neuroma. Just something which was never part of a song, but kind yeah. of filled out what was needed from a sound check. Yeah, and so I used to play that, and over time we kind of introduced it to being um, one of the riffs for yeah. Gash of the Attic, Gash in the Attic. So yeah. that, so that riff from just something which we built up. One of the guys in practice was like, "What's that riff you're always playing in Soundcheck? It's not one of our songs." So no, it's not. It's this, and we're like, "Oh, well, put, let's make that into a riff." Exactly. And, yeah. and, uh, and on a similar note of like writing music, I, um, for just over a year I was working in a, at a hotel in a city center and i'd work night shifts and the night shifts were really quiet i'd yeah. be busy up until midnight and then i was bit i was quiet then until 5 a.m or mm. so besides the occasional you know late night um person coming in to check into the hotel or whatever and yeah. i was actually writing music while i was in work but without an instrument yeah and i, I had a, i had all these little notepads with all of these riff ideas and rhythm ideas written down yeah. and uh, i'd cut like then i'd go to practice or I'd come home and i'd be like i'd write it out and there's a couple of songs which for crepitation 
which were on the worldwide slamicide split uh which i had wrote i i'd composed the entire song um without actually having an instrument um because i was just playing be- playing beats with my hands or i like just on a desk or i had ideas about rhythms that i wanted to do or kind of putting structures together and i was looking automatically i'm a very kind of I visualize shapes a lot and I put a lot of like mathematical thinking into music. So Mm -hmm. I was thinking of how to write music while I had downtime, but without necessarily being musical about it. So there's a, there's a song called placenta dispenser, uh, which the opening riff uh, is completely based on my mobile number. (laughs) So, uh, so I wrote the first half of a riff and it's obviously in, 11 eighth times uh, time signature because it's uh, a you know telephone numbers in 11 uh, 11 yeah. digits yeah, long yeah, yeah, yeah. so i composed that and then i when i but obviously when i got to playing it on an actual bass the stretches between notes were too long right. and it just didn't make sense so then i had to transpose it down so i could play it across um, two strings which made it more make more sense uh, yeah. and then I, I went to i remember going to practice with the guys be like right i've written this song uh, but I've never played it before, and you're like, what? And I was like, all oh, right, here's, here's all the tabs. <laughs> like, and I, I, I will teach you guys it while I'm learning it myself. Yeah. Um, and then we, I, they were like, I was trying to teach them this 11-8 riff, and they were like, Joe, we're in a death metal band. <laughs> where we don't what the, <laughs> like, we, 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 we can't figure this out. Like, what, what are you trying to say? And I was like, right, let me play it through. This is how we do it. So it's kind of just trying to take that composition element, trying, trying to do what you can with your time to like everything I do seems to kind of revolve or come back to music in some way. It seems like, you know, Joe, it seems like it's it, music is just entrenched in you. And no matter what you do, you know, it's co- it's going to come out in some shape or form. So when we, when we kind of come out of this ridiculous sort of situation, we are, you know, because of a pandemic, what we already had a whole bunch of challenges and that you'll be more than aware of. And our listeners will be more than aware of, uh, facing the, uh, the live music scene and metal as well. Obviously, they all kind of get put to the side now because we're going to face a whole load of new challenges um, as we come out of this. Like I read only today that you know they're going to not allow uh, st- uh, kind of moshing. They're not going to allow kind of stage diving to. Well, they didn't really do much of that anyway. But kind of crowd surfing and all that stuff. They're going to kind of uh, stop that as well. What are you, what are your kind of thoughts on on what's going to change? It's a it's a difficult one. I'm not too sure how much will actually change mm. because I, th- I think that there will. I, I can see that maybe there'll be a bit of a security presence at larger venues, but I think it'll almost have a American prohibition kind of effect on gigs that people will be craving, you know, mosh pits, craving the energy, craving that. So there'll, there'll be all of these events which will kind of pop up in these like smaller venues. Um, that will be kind of like as I say, this prohibition, this speakeasy kind of, you know, mosh easy, if you will. You know, these places <laughs> that people can do can go and do these things until there's a time yeah. where they say that they, you know, that it's kind of publicly allowed. It'll be strange to see how it's policed, to see if it's actually policed at all, or what the how they're going to actually manage it all. But I can't. I can't it's, imagine that there'll it, be. It's interesting men- that you talk about like kind of the prohibition style of things and. One of the analogies I could probably give, or the metaphors I can give, is when, um, when like uh, they invented the car, a lot of people said that it was it was the thing that saved horses. Horses would have been, you know, kind of, you know, almost kind of, you know, 
put put away, put to pasture, if you will. Uh, but it kind of saved them, and that, and then people only rode horses for the enjoyment of it, if you will, because a, a car existed. And it, it's almost that kind of whole thing about you don't you don't miss something until it's gone. Maybe, maybe because of this, people realise just how precious that is. And like you say, there is an explosion of people going to venues and mosh pits and seeing live music. And let's, we can only hope that that carries over and translates into venues springing up and scenes springing up from this. Like all, all the way through human history, all the moments of great adversity has always produced some of the best art and some of the best music um, is, is through adversity. To give it a metal context, you know, we always talk about Birmingham and Judas Priest and Sabbath coming from Birmingham. I'm born out of, you know, incredible strife and poverty and that type of thing, and it was born from that. That you know, we can only hope that when we come out of this this sort of pandemic, that the problems that it's created will force us to kind of really reassess and embrace music as a whole. I don't know. I hope that that's the case. I certainly think so. I, I, from from what I've seen on social media, people have spoken to. Everybody's at home. Everybody's trying to be as musically productive as possible. And I think that by the time lockdown's lifted, people are going to be itching to go and perform this to, you know, to for more people to hear it. People are going to be, bands are going to be coming back. I think next year is going to be, might be actually be overbearing in many ways, especially right. with all the cancellations being rescheduled. There's going to be yeah, so, that, so many. That's the thing that I'm interested in seeing how it plays out is that, you know, people are all saying, okay, we're just going to cancel the 2020 tour and we're going to make it 2021. Or we're just going to move this festival and now it's going to take place here. I get that, but there's only so much space, right? It's like, you know, you can't just move everything into one year and bunch it up into one year. You know, it's 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 not going to work like that. So, it's yeah, it's going to be almost overloaded, you know, um, in, in, in many ways. I suppose one of my other concerns, I don't know how you feel about this, is that what about the venues we're going to lose before we get back to, in inverted commas, normal? You know, the venues that will close in this interim time now and won't reopen again? It's it's hard to say. Like I can, I've seen, and I'm more than aware of quite a few venues which are struggling, which are trying to raise money to pay for various uh, costs of during the closure period. So it's kind of hard to say, and really have much of an idea of what's going to happen going going ahead. Yeah. There's, uh, it's a, a sad loss to a lot of venues, but I I think that with the loss of a lot of venues, there'll be people will start looking in alternative places if. If we lose a large percentage of venues which host live music, people are going to look elsewhere. It's, it won't be the end of live music. It'll just be a bit of an obstacle, and people will find these new places and start putting shows on in. I was talking about on, the, uh, on a couple of shows ago, I was talking that we thought that the next sort of paradigm shift in music would have happened from, like, you know, the next Nirvana or CDs becoming uh, replacing vinyl. I thought that the next sort of shift would take place on that for, or would be a format thing essentially. Um, but it seems like that this virus has sped up the next phase of what live music and will look like. Yeah, with the with the live streaming of shows, it's been insane. Like a, a lot of a lot of the um, pre-existing platforms, like bands in town, now give you the option to update uh, and to announce a show but announce as a live stream yeah. and they quickly adapted to that and i think a lot of platforms are making these adaptions to to keep themselves still relevant to keep everything ticking along but also to give bands that's that outlet because bands need that outlet and 
they need to keep they, they need to keep up their appearances they need to keep up their output and they need to stay in touch with the fans and the fans want to see what's going on with these bands what are these bands doing when it's quiet what about that show that they cancelled which i'm not going to get to see but i get to see a live stream of so that's certainly a huge a huge change i don't know where i don't know if it's something which will stay in place it would be nice to an extent but i'd like to think that people don't necessarily rely on it mm. i i put forward a couple of ideas with it one of them being that you know you you pay for the live stream but that means that you get a ticket to a live show for free to kind of run alongside streaming and the live experience i put that forward as well some people have took up that and starts to do that as well like you know so I think this will just reshape the scene. I don't think it will destroy it. I think it will reshape it. But unfortunately, there will be casualties along the way, sadly, I believe. Um, you know, and that, that's the, probably the real shame of it. But maybe necessary, maybe necessary in order for us to, to come back stronger, to, which is almost feels like a terrible thing to say, but, you know, come back stronger from you know, uh, something that most of us in our lifetime would have never faced, anything even close to this. Yes, certainly. I think it's going to be a massive change. It'll be a very interesting journey to see what happens, to see what people do, to see how people react. But I think with the, our previous discussions about promoters and DI, the DIY aesthetic for providing a platform, people will always find a new way to put to, a new place to put on music. If something closes, that somewhere else will open up, or they'll just find a way to do it—a new building, a new space. All you need for, mu- for music to exist is. A, a, a space and the equipment to actually create like, to create music so if you've got if you've got the space the power and the electricity and the actual the pa system to produce music then you'll be fine like they'll always people will always find a, a, metal a platform is, to metal is the uh, is the dandelion that springs from the concrete uh, yes it just, it just it just finds a way some people see them as weeds i don't I, you know they're still as pretty as all the other flowers Joe, we've nearly done. We've done over two hours. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even started. We've done over two hours. We're, we'll definitely get, ladies and gentlemen, we'll definitely get Joe back on the show because you know. And, and what we'll also do is we'll make sure that we've got Joe on speed dial if we ever are in a pub quiz with with any relating question to metal because I'm pretty sure Joe's going to know it. What is it? <laughs> what's the next things for you then? What are you What are you working on now? What's going to be the next things for yourself? So a little bit of what I've been doing while I'm during lockdown, as I say, I bought, a, I bought an interface and I bought, I've been um, practicing my music tech skills. Um, so I, over two weekends, I recorded a, an entire album for um, on bass for a band called Awaken the Misogynist, which is a, a international project of several different people who've never met before, um, from uh, from China, from Nepal, from the United States, from Switzerland, and me from the UK, uh, from various other members of other like death metal bands around the world. They already had uh, a full album written, and they brought me on board to um, record uh, the album. So I've I learned the entire album, and I've recorded it over two weekends at home. Um, so they're, they're currently in the mixing process for a little three-track EP while they work more on the album. But I've kind of recorded all my parts. I've given that to them. And we're just kind of letting that flow. It's nothing that we need to really push because it's not something which is ever going to be taken live. Um, but it's just a fun project um, to work with some other people. Um, as far as my bands are concerned, Crepitation and Call of the Crisis, I, um, I've been I've been 
I was very busy at the beginning, but I've kind of slacked a little bit. So I've just been focusing on my own kind of uh, my own musical education for a little while. So I've uh, I've written some uh, crepitation songs. I've written towards some uh, Carpal Kleister songs. Both bands are working towards their second full-length albums. Um, some are further along than the other, um, but it'll be nice after lockdown to kind of get all of those, get to back in the studio to try and all share our ideas and all the members of both bands are brimming with ideas and brimming with input so it's going to be a very kind of musical renaissance moment when we're all back together to kind of really discuss all of this and really kind of exchange all the ideas all the things that we've kind of discovered and uh, since then since since we all last saw each other in the meantime i've been working through a um i've been practicing a lot of my, my own techniques trying to improve a bit of self-improvement i've been working through alex webster from cannibal corpses bass book extreme metal bass um, trying to develop my some techniques trying to, to try and just improve my own ability um so the the band the bands are quiet for now but they will be busy again in the any future thoughts on any thoughts on pr- promoting some some shows so I've spoken with the guys at, um, at Outpost, and as soon as the lockdown's lifted, I'd definitely like to go, get together with them, put a show on, just to kind of get by everybody back out again. As far as uh, promoting shows, um, obviously, we've not really gone into detail, maybe another time, but with UK Slamfest, we did have um, the 2020 edition booked in in Manchester in September. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not too sure on where the, what the future is for that at the moment. We are going to wait until the end of the month, and then the whole team's going to have a bit of a video call and discuss it all to see it what we want to do going forward with that yeah. kind of depends on the um the climate of the political climate the economic climate and the viral climate if you will mm-hmm. to see what we're going to do with that going forward but as far as booking shows um i'm not really looking to book many shows or really book much going on much commit to anything yeah, uh, yeah. At, the, at the at the moment it's just the, the climate's just not really accommodating mm-hmm. for it and uh, all of the all of the band all of the shows that both bands had uh, have either been cancelled or postponed yeah. to uh, later in the year. So at the moment we're just kind of keeping with them and we're focusing on our like the, all of the band admin stuff, the behind the scenes stuff, the writing, um, the you know trying to help boost our own profile a little bit. Yeah. Do all of the stuff that we don't normally have time to do when we're touring or playing shows. Fantastic, fantastic. There'll be a ton of musicians now listening to that and going, "Fucking hell, Joe thinks he's fucking. He's done fuck all. He's done fucking loads. You'd seem like been crazy productive, and it seems like it's that would have happened even if there hadn't have been a lockdown. It seems like, ladies and gentlemen, Joe is very much a defender of the faith and very much someone who has the metal with inside him, and whatever way he can, it's going to come out either promoting, playing in bands, writing, and it just seems to be." kind of just as excited about it as he was when he first kind of started in a band, you know, and I think that's fantastic, Joe. I think that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of people will take, will listen to this and get a lot of inspiration from and and find, you know, really, really positive, which is something that often maybe death metal and that type of thing doesn't really get its its props that it should do. I think a lot of people will go, shit, I really need to get my shit together, listen to what Joe's doing. Uh, He's in several (laughs) bands and writing a ton of shit. It's amazing. So, you know, thanks, thanks again for, for, for coming on the show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Joe Mortimer. 
No, absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, and hope to uh, catch you again. Throw all the all. One thing I would just like to say on the back of that, though, is that being productive isn't necessarily the best way to operate your time at the moment because of mm. such an unsure, you know, such a time of uncertainty and lack of clarity, and you know, people concerned about physical health, mental health, you know, the the economy and stuff. That while I was able to be productive for a long for the beginning of the lockdown uh, my product productivity slowed down but um one thing which i've noticed is the amount of like, social media the amount of people the amount of influencers out there who are saying that this is now the time to be productive this is the time to make yeah. the best out of you and i think people really need to focus on that it's maybe not the best time to be productive it, it works for some people it works it doesn't work for others but people shouldn't certainly shouldn't feel the pressure on themselves that there's a lot of people talking about to try and better themselves because people are right now best doing the thing which is best for them. Sometimes daily that might be to, the best thing for me today is to have a day on the sofa and relax and watch a movie yeah. and maybe have a beer or something. Yeah. And all the days that you might wake up super full of like you know passion and motivation and you want to just get out your, your guitar, your bass, your instrument, whatever you do, your pen, your you know your paintbrush, and you just want to be super you know productive that way. But like. As, as happy as the as I am with the uh, the level of productivity I've had, uh, I'd just like to say that it's definitely not the. Uh, it's I not something that's. Uh, uh, job one is to simply survive it, to simply get to the end of this process, um, and whatever the next process is. And like you say, some days, Joe's one hundred percent right. You know, people that will be listening to this will be like, "Christ, Joe's done a lot." He has. But that's because he's rode the waves of when he wanted to do those things. You know, like Joe said, I'm sure there's been moments where he's like, you know what, I don't feel that I can do this now. I'm going to have a day on the couch. I'm the same. You know, people may look and go, wow, he's doing this, he's doing that or whatever. But some days are hard. Some days are tough. And some days simply getting through is, is enough. And knowing that means that when those creative spurts happen and those moments kind of happen, they, they, they seem there's a lot more potency to them rather than sitting there going, today I have to be productive. It's much better to go, I want to be productive, you know. Yeah, I think that's exactly that's, that's, that, that, that's the that's the point which I really want to drive home is that it it needs to be organic. There's like if you sit there and from six to six pm till eight pm every day you're sitting down because you're going to do something musical or you're going to do something productive, then you're probably going to actually do the complete opposite and you're probably yeah. going to get yourself in such a tears you're going to get yourself in a, a really like full of writer's block and nothing works and you hate everything and then you don't do it again for the next few days because you're in such a mood with it the best way is to just ride you know learn to understand yourself and ride those emotions ride those ride that wave while we're in this period of uncertainty that would be my advice to everybody going forward like if, if you can be productive great if you're not productive that's just as good what 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 a beautiful way to to end this. Not only is Joe a super you know bassist and superb musician and an advocate of of metal uh, in his local scene, he's also a really nice guy. That's fantastic, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Joseph Mortimer, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, mate. Good to chat to you. Great chatting to Joe. There, really, just a great outlook. Really positive. You know, the future of metal in our local community and our local scene is very much in safe hands with with, with him 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 involved. Really going to get him in again because we didn't cover anywhere near what we should have covered with the UK Slamfest and that whole. That's a, that's a massive conversation as well. And quite a few times I had to stop from going off on mad tangents because this would have been three, four, five hour long conversations. So we'll definitely get Joe back. 
Um, I hope you enjoyed this show. This show was suggested by a listener that we should do this, and that's what I want you to do. Suggest people that I should be talking to. Who wants to come on the show? What do you want to talk about? What are these issues that we need to look at, examine, and help move forward? Once again, see you at the show. I don't know when that's going to be, guys, but it's going to be it's got to be soon, right? I don't think we're allowed to mosh when we get there, but I think we're pretty sure we're going to have a live scene when we return. We will. I guarantee this, and I promise I will see you at the show. Bye.